WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 298. Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 404 in the Hilton Recording Studios in Wilmington, North Carolina. In today's episode, two out of four engines taken out in an RJ-85 incident, a serious 737 upset, the pilot shortage hits flight instructor ranks, more news, your feedback, and the latest Plain Tales installment, Billy Barker. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in your upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. Flight 298 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast. And I am a captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And joining me, 1, former RAF and RAAF fighter pilot, professional photographer, currently wide-body captain for a European carrier, this week with us on this side of the pond in Miami, Florida, Captain Nick Anderson. Well, hi there, Jeff. Uh, this is going to be very frustrating, I'm sure. Um, my internet connection here at uh, the Confidante Hotel on Collins in Miami's mid-beach area is not brilliant, so I hope it'll uh, be sufficient to do the show. But uh, sometimes you just have to uh, take what you can get. Yeah, I'm not confidente in the bandwidth day today. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> but uh, it is now a lovely day in Miami. Last couple of days have been a bit rainy. It's blowing a gale out there, mind you. Uh, we made the mistake of having breakfast out on the patio. And uh, when my uh, bowl of cereal went flying off the table, I thought, <laughs> thought better of it. <laughs> little, little breezy. Oh, that's a shame. All right. Well, also. We have a special guest joining us today, and we have our special guest music there, the Trollalo Man. This person is joining us from Barcelona, Catalonia, Spain. We're not sure about all that. Uh, no, we are sure he is joining us from Barcelona. Uh, he is a certificated private pilot, and he is checked out in, I think, more than 15 different aircraft types, including a seaplane rating, and we all know him as Fred. Fred Sampson. Hey guys, hey Jeff, hey Nick, happy to be here today. It's a beautiful, beautiful day in Spain, Catalonia. Well, we're not quite sure, but it's beautiful, and uh, it's going to be a fun show. Nick, we'll, we'll work through the bandwidth issues, and we'll have some fun. Yeah. Oh, you know what I was going to say? I forgot to add at the very end of that, international man of intrigue for your intro there, Fred. I should get that as my lower third. <laughs> it really should. <laughs> because, you know, Fred is everywhere. Uh, just uh, uh, an amazing person. Oh, yeah, yeah. I forgot to mention that you were also a very accomplished, uh, pretty serious, uh, what they call it, FPV uh, drone pilot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. 
Awesome. PV drone pilot racer. And, uh, have you, uh, have you been doing that much lately? Uh, I know that we've, uh, you know, watched you, uh, do your handiwork with those, uh, those little tiny, uh, drones, uh, over there in Northern California. Are you still able to, to keep your hand in that or what? Yeah, I, I still fly by once a week. Um, I'm hoping to get back as my schedule gets more regular, hoping to get back to, uh, to flying. But the, the thing with drones that I don't think people understand is <laughs> you fly until you break something. And so the, the bandwidth you need is the night before or the weekend before when you're fixing stuff and building things and you go out, you fly, you break something and you do it again. So I guess breaking uh, things uh, is a pretty common thing. Oh yeah. If you, you, we bring three or four, three or four drones with us and we, we, we stop flying when they're all broken and we go home, we fix them and we do it again. Oh, cool. Anyway, so unlike having a girlfriend, breaking up is hard to do, but not for a drone pilot. <laughs> yeah, the intersection of uh, drone pilots and people who have girlfriends, Nick, is a very small, uh, in the Venn diagram, it's very small. <laughs> <laughs> the Venn diagram. So you can tell that Fred has a little bit of a technical background, you know, throwing in Venn diagrams. Come on. This is an aviation show. We don't do that stuff here. Um. So, uh, catch us up a little bit about, uh, what, what, what's been going on with you, Fred? Uh, well, I've got a new, so, so my new goal of my flying career is to provide Nick with fun airplanes to fly when he comes to San Francisco. And so I've been working on, uh, yeah. check out in something called the Great Lakes, which Ooh. is a, uh, open tandem, open cockpit, uh, biplane. Um, this one's good. It's a, it's one of the, we call it the Pepsi and so red, white, and blue has a 0360 in it, which is a, a nice engine. Uh, but it has little idiosyncrasies. It has, you know, it's a little bit old, so it's got heel brakes and uh, lots of little things to get around. So maybe another five, five, six hours, and I'll be, I'll be checked out in the airplane. But it's a definitely a different experience. Why would they put the brakes on the heel and not the toe? Uh, th- that's how they used to come. This one's from the seventies. Okay, and um, I guess uh, like everything else, the, the toe brakes were an innovation at some point. Uh, but they've kept the airplane pretty much original. So this one has. has heel brakes and it takes a little bit of time to uh to master those especially when you're here when when you're used to uh the toe brakes yeah i would imagine that it would be a little confusing that sounds like brilliant fun fred um what's it like having your hair blowing in the breeze it's real fun you have to wear a little hat you know a little snoopy hat with uh to, to keep the headset from flying off that's mostly because we don't have that many headsets and we don't give you a new one every time uh but the airplane is uh, fully aerobatic <laughs> Uh, Nick, which is which is really fun, you know, hanging upside down with your head in the airstream, and uh, uh, the weather here, or not here in in um, in Spain, but the weather in California is still good enough to fly uh, in the open open cockpit biplane. So it's uh, it's real fun. Wow! And so uh, work and not pleasure uh, brings you to Barcelona, I assume. Mm-hmm. Here for work this week, back home tomorrow, and then. Um, I think the next one is uh, APG 300. So I think I'm home for the weekend and then awesome. I go to Atlanta the weekend. after. Yeah. That. We're looking forward to seeing you in person. For oh, that's going to be fun. Yeah. I might weeks. bring some drones. We'll have a little fun. In the, oh yeah. In this house. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah, we and a lot of batteries. <laughs> Def- we can charge uh, yep. but a lot of batteries and uh, a spare pair of goggles. So we can take people out for some FPV rides. It should be fun. Oh, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. A lot of fun. Okay. And uh, well, since, Fred just mentioned it. Uh, let's not forget that uh, the uh, milestone of 300 episodes is coming up in, uh, let's see, is that less than two weeks, I think now? Uh, yeah. So next week is Thanksgiving uh, week, uh, and uh, we're doing it on Thanksgiving Saturday, the 25th of November at uh, Dana's place. 
in uh, Smyrna, Georgia. And if you're interested, you're in the area, you have uh, nothing else to do and you want to join us for the live recording slash um, pigging out on uh, fantastic uh, barbecue cooked by Dana on the big green egg. And of course, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there'll be some alcoholic beverages uh, there as well. Uh, please RSVP by uh, sending us an email to 300 at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Again, that's 300 at AirlinePilotGuy.com. And that way we'll have some idea of how many are going to make it for our celebration. And uh, we're really looking forward to that. Um, also, if you're listening to this right now, it's episode 298. Um, we're recording on Tuesday, the what day is today? The 14th of uh, November. And uh, on Thursday, in just two days, we're going to record episode 299 so that we can all fit these things in and it'll work out. So we're actually doing episode 300 on Saturday, the 25th. And uh, so this uh, episode hopefully will be out later this week. And then the one we record on Thursday will be out uh, next week sometime. So hope that makes some sense. Uh, Nick, so you're down in Miami, obviously on another trip. I'm, I'm assuming you're not on a vacation or a holiday. And uh, tell us uh, what's been going on with you, uh, other than a lot of flying, apparently. Um, no, that's about it, for, uh, Jeff, really. It's it's just trip after trip at the moment. Um, we've got yet more of our bin liners uh, stationary, unusable. Um, so, again, we're uh, picking up uh, more flights uh, and... Uh, I'm literally, uh, after this flight, which is a four-day trip for me, um, I've only got two days at home, 48 hours, and then I'm off out to San Francisco. Uh, and then then it'll be a little bit of a break, which I'm using, of course, to come across to Atlanta. So if I arrive with black rings under my eyes uh, and uh, not knowing which planet I'm on, yeah, I hope you'll understand. Well, we're used to that, Nick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, wow. very true. But no, things are just way too busy at the moment for comfort. But uh, you know, hopefully it'll be uh, not last more than a few months, and uh, those uh, Boeing's will uh, start getting airborne again. It would be nice. Yeah, it's kind of throwing a wrench a little bit into your schedule. I, I see. Yeah, it certainly is. But uh, there you go. It's all part and parcel of uh, being an airline pilot. You have to take the rough with the smooth sometimes. That's right. That's right. Okay. Um, well, see, last week I was on a four day that I picked up, and I believe that's when we recorded uh, episode 297. It's uh, I only had a day off. I had Sunday off, and so that was nice to be able to kind of unpack and repack and also watch the uh, Formula One race in Brazil. Yes, I'm now a Formula One fan and uh, really enjoyed that race. And uh, then I was while I was watching – the race I uh, was packing uh, again for this trip uh, just left um, uh, yesterday um, late morning and uh, I'm here in Wilmington and I'm off all day today. So that's nice. And then uh, I'll be home on Thursday afternoon uh, just in time to unpack the gear and get it set up for episode 299. So that you're caught up now. I didn't really do a lot. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Jeff, who won the F1? Because I didn't get to see it. I was busy flying out. It was the uh, the German uh, Vettel. Oh, Vettel. Mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and and how did Hamilton do? Because he started at uh, the back of the grid, didn't he? He ended up uh, almost on the podium. He uh, finished fourth. Oh, oh, excellent job. 
Yeah, he did a fantastic job. He's actually started from the pit lanes. Um, uh, So, you know, even further back uh, from the back part of the grid and uh, worked his way all the way up to uh, four. And he was getting very close to overtaking Raikkonen uh, for the uh, third spot on the podium, but uh, not quite. The tires ran out for him. So good race, though. Good race. (laughs) Excellent. All right. I'm shame I missed it. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I'm sure you can find a recording of it somewhere. All right. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, it is November and uh, something we uh, call also Movember. And uh, let me play a quick recording of First Officer Craig. He came up with this idea to uh, uh, get involved with the uh, fundraising for men's health and uh, take it away, First Officer Craig. Hey, APGers. It's FO Craig here. Um, as most of you know, uh, month of October, which currently is right now, uh, a lot of people um, you maybe see around have uh, are wearing pink for uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and that's a great thing, and I help support it by wearing a pink tie and pink epilepsy on the flight line. I also have donated a little bit of funds to breast cancer awareness research and uh, whatnot. So with November coming up, November is Men's Health Awareness Month as far as uh, just general men's health, uh, testicular cancer, prostate cancer. And so with Captain Jeff's blessing, um, I went ahead and started Captain Jeff's Mustache Crew um, with a company called uh, Movember Foundation. And uh, what they do is they uh, support and raise awareness and research of general men's health, uh, testicular and prostate cancer by, uh, you can donate money as well as just show pride. Like in October, you wear pink for breast cancer awareness. Uh, in November, you can uh, do a no shave November or a Movember and grow out a mustache or facial hair or whatever, um, what kind of facial hair uh, trimmings you'd like to do. I plan to uh, draw, uh, grow out my best uh, Captain Jeff mustache. I don't think I'll be as good as his, but I'll get, definitely give it my best try. Um, I'll give this link to Captain Jeff to put in the show notes. Um, but it is HTTPS uh, a colon uh, two backslashes moteam.co slash Captain dash Jeff dash S dash mustache dash crew. And uh, again, I'll put have uh, Captain Jeff put that in the show notes. And it's a team that I created for uh, all the APG community. For those males who uh, want to grow out the facial hair, or, I don't know, maybe we got some females that want to do that too. But uh, if uh, you can uh, create a pay, uh, your own uh, kind of page on this website and uh, post a picture of your mustache or your progress throughout the month of November and you can also uh, donate money I uh, for the Captain Jeff's mustache crew I set the uh, mark at a thousand dollars I already donated ten dollars to help uh, kind of get this thing moving so uh, feel free to reach out to Captain Jeff and he can forward it to me or feel free to reach out to me for more information. Um, I'm at Greenhorn CFI uh, on Twitter or uh, FO Craig. Um, I'm Craig Pisic on Facebook. and So just feel free to reach out or re- uh, to me or Captain Jeff. And if uh, the link doesn't work for some reason or if um, 
got any questions uh, i hope that uh we can get a good group of people to join this and love to see what everybody's best impersonation of uh captain jeff's mustache is thanks for uh listening uh great job on the show guys i love it and uh just looking forward uh you're coming up on 300 episodes looking forward to another 300 so this is fo craig signing out talk to you later bye thank you fo craig uh you know it's you know those new uh, iPhone um, 10 uh, animations, emoticon animations? I wonder if they have like just a mustache and then we could do like an actual animated Captain Jeff's mustache. No, not a good idea. Um, let's see. We uh, On the screen here, I'm hoping that everybody can see that if you're watching the video. That is a picture of F.O. Craig and uh, looks like he is... Uh, Growing a pretty nice looking there mustache there, I'd say, although it's a it's a brown mustache or a brunette, not a not a gray or white mustache like mine. So he's going to have to put some dye or something on it to make it look like mine. Shoe, shoe polish, or oh, actually, the polish. wife's mascara works pretty well. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, you mean what? I should change mine to make it dark, or he should? Oh, never mind. Doesn't make any difference. I I think I think for you, Jeff, it needs to go white. Yeah, That's fine. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So, um, right now looks like I'm looking at the, uh, Captain Jeff's mustache crew page on uh, the Movember foundation. looks like we're up to $210, uh, funds raised and, uh, Steph even got involved there and not with the, uh, facial hair, but with the donations. Thank you, Steph, for your donation. Ken McCrory is also participating. Thank you, uh, very much from, uh, you Ken and, uh, Craig, of course, and myself. And, uh, if you want to become involved in this. Um, again, we'll have the link in the show notes and you can become part of Captain Jeff's mustache crew. So thank you a lot, uh, First Officer Craig, for that. And now it's time for the Coffee Fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right, the Coffee Fund is your way to support the show financially. Now, interestingly, uh, a lot of you listening to the show live right now are uh, part of the Coffee Fund cadre, and many of you listening to the audio right now are as well. But did you know that less than 1% of the folks listening to the show actually participate in the uh, Coffee Fund cadre? And uh, I just might uh, ask you to consider if you have some extra change lying around and you want to support the show and continue uh, motivating us to do it, uh, please consider joining us uh, on the Coffee Fund cadre. And uh, again, that's the Coffee Fund, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. And since the last episode, I don't think we had, well, you know, it's not too long since we did our last episode. Uh, so we don't have any uh, Coffee Fund classic uh, donations since then, but we do have a couple new patrons via patreon.com. And they are John Hyde and Matej Balantik. Matej, M-A-T-E-J. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly or not, but uh, we do appreciate your pledges. New producers from uh, or for the 
Airline Pilot Guys show. And again, if you want to learn more about how you can become part of the Coffee Fun Cadre and get those uh, periodic crew logs that we put out there, uh, Captain Nick, actually three of them since the last show. So uh, a very, uh, uh, very prolific uh, producer of crew logs uh, in the uh, recent days. And uh, anyway, uh, we would really appreciate it if you'd consider joining us again. We always say if you need your money for food and for shelter and for, well, most importantly, flying lessons, renting airplanes, that kind of stuff. Well, don't give us that money. You need to spend it on the important stuff. But again, coffee fund, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Thanks, everyone, for your generous contributions. What is it with the Russians and the Boeing 737, you might ask? I know I do. Uh, Russian investigators have detailed a serious loss of control incident last month involving a UTAIR, U-T-A-I-R, I'm supposing that that's the way you pronounce it, UTAIR or UTAIR, Boeing 737-500 on approach to Moscow's Vinokovo. Uh, airport federal air transport regulator has revealed that the aircraft was subjected to federal air transport regulator has revealed that the aircraft was subjected to excessive pitch up to 45 degrees and a bank of 95 degrees before the crew regained control. The aircraft has been following a had been following a precision approach to runway six after a service from Krasnodar on the 13th of October. Uh, Rosa Vyatsa states, I think that's their uh, uh, investigative agency, states that the conditions were overcast with a cloud base of just 60 meters and that the aircraft was in cloud and out of sight of ground. The aircraft was following an arrival pattern which involved passing this uh, IBTER waypoint southwest of the airport at a height of 600 meters before turning right to align with the runway and descending to 400 meters by the final approach point. Rosa Viazia says this turn and descent were conducted with the autopilot and auto, auto throttle engaged, the landing gear deployed, and the flaps set at 15 degrees. The engines were operating at 35 to 40 percent of their N1 level. Uh, after the turn, the aircraft leveled at 400 meters, but its pitch started increasing to 10 degrees, and airspeed declined to 133 to 135 knots. The auto throttle raised the thrust level to 75 percent of N1. As the 737 approached the entry point to the glide path at around 130 knots, the crew extended the flaps to 30 degrees, and the autopilot disengaged. Now, I'm not sure if they intended for it to disengage. I'm guessing not. Uh, it just uh, disengaged on its own, I believe. Uh, Rosa Viazia says the engine thrust setting had increased further by this point to 95% of N1, and this power setting combined with an increasing pitch of 19 degrees that's high, folks, resulted in the jet entering a smooth climb, they put in quotes, while the airspeed declined to 128 knots. 
The pilot's control column, it states, was pushed nose down. Thrust levers levers were pulled back to a lower power setting, but without a disconnection of the auto throttles. Pitch continued to increase to a maximum of 45 degrees, nose high, and airspeed bled away to less than 100 knots, triggering a stick shaker alert. The inquiry says the control column registered alternating deflection and the aircraft experienced banks of up to 95%. As After the jet reached the maximum pitch, the control column was pushed forward and remained this way until the aircraft emerged from the upset. It had climbed to a height of 750 meters during the event, and once the crew regained control, the aircraft executed a go-around at 350 meters. The second approach was uneventful. Uh, Rosa Viazia says that despite the excessive operating parameters, the aircraft did not breach loading and speed limits for its configuration. None of the 111 passengers and five crew members were injured and the jet was undamaged. Investigators are still analyzing the circumstances of this incident, which took place in daylight at around 917 local time in the morning. So this sounds a lot to me like a couple of these incidents that uh, resulted in accidents and, and crashes and uh, great loss of life uh, in the past. And again, involving operators from this part of the world uh, and operating that uh, particular type of airplane. And uh, I was reading through this thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, this was <laughs> that close to another uh, huge loss of life and uh, you know a, a serious uh, aircraft accident. And uh, so what what's going on here? Are, are people just not paying attention to what is happening with the autom- automation, autoflight system? That's what I'm suspecting. I don't know, Jeff. Um, the weather was pretty poor, wasn't it? I mean, uh, I think the minima for this approach uh, uh, were something like 800 meters, and that was the given visibility. Uh, so uh, it was a pretty foul uh, day in snow. Um, so not brilliant conditions so the guy should have been really glued to his instruments and i suspect perhaps he was trying to fly some of this visually and not instrument flying very well uh, and uh, he got disorientated that would be my best guess yeah um you know i'm i'm thinking that uh, now you know it's it's perfectly normal and common for people to operate uh, you know the auto th- Flight system and the auto throttle, auto auto thrust system, uh, they work in conjunction with each other, but they're not necessarily, uh, you know, tied together. Um, and you can operate uh, the airplane manually flying the airplane and continue to leave the auto throttle system on, which is very common uh, practice. Um, but um, I'm thinking that maybe the crew lost sight of what the auto throttle uh, system was was doing and um, weren't paying close attention to their airspeed control. I don't know. You know, it's just, was this autopilot disengagement, was that something that took them by surprise? Uh, or didn't, did they assume that the autopilot system was still engaged, perhaps? And then that's how the pitch got all out of whack? I, I don't know. It's just, uh, I'm scratching my head on this one. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it could, it could be. But the, the auto thrust was trying to do its thing. It was bringing the power up when they were at very low speed. But they were manually overriding it and pulling the thrust levers back again. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand the logic there. Yeah, either. I think that there was some kind of confusion in the human brain and the auto flight automation system. And they were on different pages and weren't quite understanding what the airplane was doing. And as I 
always say, you know, if you if you really have no idea what the auto flight system is doing or the auto thrust system is doing, then just turn everything off and fly the airplane because gosh darn it, we're pilots and we know how to fly and we know how to keep an airplane under control, I'm hoping. So uh, why they didn't do that in this case uh, is, a, is a mystery to me. I don't know. Fred, do you have any, any thoughts on this? I mean, 95 degrees is more upside down than right side up. Yep. And at 3,000 feet, that's I, I'm just trying to figure out what the energy curve is for that and how close they were for from not recovering that airplane. Um, you know, you're in an airliner almost upside down between 1,000 and 300 feet above the ground. That's uh, Do you guys train for something like that? Do you guys do upset recovery scenarios at those specific attitudes? Uh, we do. Uh, in fact, uh, my airline... Um, has put a lot of emphasis in the last couple of years because of all these accidents recently of uh, unusual attitudes and aircraft upsets. And we have a procedure, um, a standard procedure to employ when we're in any kind of an upset situation. And the uh, the four-step basically uh, upset recovery procedure uh, is is designed to basically get you out of any attitude uh, that you might find yourself in. But um, yeah, uh, there are uh, efforts underway to ensure that if you do get yourself into a situation uh, like this upset, that you uh, employ a standard standard procedure to get you out of it. And of course, on the Airbus, uh, Fred, our protect envelope protection system won't allow you to get into such uh, extreme attitudes uh, unless, of course, uh, the protection system uh is not available to you because uh, the flight control system or the flight control computers have been downgraded to a more basic level level following a failure. But so despite the fact that we have all these protections, we still practice uh, unusual um, attitudes, recovery from uh, jet upsets. In fact, you know, we've got uh, training ongoing all the time, even when I'm not in the simulator. In fact, uh, got to finish phase three of the current training program uh, on my computer uh, before the end of the month which so just remind me guys that i need to do that don't forget to do that <laughs> yeah, thanks <laughs> can you do that on your flight over from uh from london to uh atlanta oh uh, yeah that's a good idea i'll be at the back of some horrible uh, 757 i expect being deafened <laughs> so it'll give me something to do okay don't for don't forget your hearing protection. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'll need more than hearing protection if I have to get on that thing. <laughs> so so you know you make a good point. Airbus uh, has designed airplanes so that uh, the protection envelope should keep you from getting into any any kind of uh, uh, unusual attitude uh, and upset situation like this. However, there's the rub. If if these protection systems are not working, uh, you still have to know how to get out of it uh, as a pilot. And uh, we've seen, you know, several instances in the last couple of decades where, you know, the protections were gone and uh, people ended up getting into serious trouble. So we just have to put more emphasis on, first of all, not getting into these situations to begin with, understanding automation. And, uh, but if you find yourself in a situation, uh, then know how to recover from it. And apparently, with success this uh, time, it was a uh, a recovery situation and not a not an accident. So, but the, but just there by the grace of God, it was damn close, wasn't it? 
Yeah, it was close. Very I mean, close. We, could, we, we can recover an aerobatic airplane at about a thousand feet. A Cessna, a three thousand feet. I would, you know, I, 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 yeah. This is this is really really close. Too close. Okay. Um, speaking of close, here's an interesting incident that occurred, and the crew did a fantastic job uh, recovering from this. Uh, an SA airline Avro RJ85. I think it's also isn't that the 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 BA146 as well? I think that's mm-hmm. just like a different. That's exactly right. Yeah, the Avro ones. I think are built in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Uh, the four, you know, the high wing four engine, um, regional airliner. Uh, so many, many of you probably, uh, know what that is, uh, was flying from Harare in Zimbabwe to Johannesburg, South Africa with 34 passengers, four crew was en route nearing the top of descent towards uh, Johannesburg when the number two engine, an LF 507 inboard left hand suffered an uncontained failure, ejecting parts of the hot section and turbine towards the number one engine, which is the outboard on the left side, causing that engine to fail too. Wow. The aircraft continued to Johannesburg, was vectored for an approach to runway 21 right, while other aircraft were pulled off the approaches to runway. Oh, they were using the the threes, the runways three, uh, but uh, they came in to 21 right, obviously an emergency situation, and they they uh, pulled all the uh, aircraft who were on approach to runway three uh, off of those approaches and moved out of the way so the airplane could get on the ground as quickly as possible. Said they landed without further incident. Vacated on a run, uh, taxiway, Lima taxied to the apron, followed by emergency services awaiting the aircraft. The airline reported all passengers remain uninjured and wrote, quote, while en route, one of the four engines suffered an uncontained failure, which then caused damage to its adjacent engine. Upon assessing the damage and status of the aircraft, the crew elected to continue to Johannesburg, where it landed safely under the power of its remaining two engines. At no point was the safety of the passengers or crew in jeopardy. So, uh... This uh, was a job well done by this air crew because anytime you have, and and <laughs> Captain Nick can definitely attest to this because he routinely flies four engine aircraft. And when you lose one engine, that's not a good thing. You lose two engines, and it's not a good thing either, a much worse thing. And then when it, they're both on the same side, that's when you're really in deep doo doo, I'd say. What do you think, Captain Nick? Well, absolutely, Jeff. Uh, I mean, it is the equivalent of a single-engine failure in a a twin-engine airplane, so you've lost all the power on one wing. But it's not something you expect uh, and regularly train for on a four-engine airplane. So uh, we do practice uh, two-engine work in the 340, but uh, because it's a very remote possibility, it's not something that comes around very often. And uh, it's it's never easy. You're really worried about uh, when they're both failed on the same side of um, not having enough uh, rudder control if you need to go around or need to put a lot of power on um, because uh, that is one of your limiting factors. You have to keep the approach speed up so that you've got enough rudder authority to counter all that thrust you're going to put in on just on one side. Uh, and um, because uh, of the very limited performance on two engines you've got this two dead pods hanging on the wing creating an enormous amount of drag we drag we have a relatively high uh, visual committal height of around 500 feet so from that height onwards uh, you really are committed to land uh, and a go around below that height is very dangerous so it would only be done in the most extreme of circumstances so uh, yep 
uh, when we do these, uh, it's thought about and planned some distance out, set up on a long straight in approach. And um, once you're below 500 feet, that's it. Your only real aim now is to somehow get the airplane safely onto the runway and uh, pray that uh, air traffic don't do anything stupid like the simulator instructors do, which is to taxi a fire truck onto the middle of the runway or something and force you to do a low-level go-around. Um, I mean, uh, so from 500 feet on, all you're interested now is coming below your uh, VMCA2, uh, which is the minimum speed on two engines, back down to your landing speed so you stand a chance of stopping before the end of the runway. So that would be the most critical aspect of uh, an approach with two engines out on the same side? Absolutely, yeah. That last 500 feet is uh, is where it's all about. I mean, getting the approach set up um, and uh, making sure you never get slow because we talk about being on the wrong side of the drag curve. Well, it's very easy to do when you're on two engines so that you end up getting a little bit slow. The amount of drag builds up very quickly and you don't really want to have to bring those two engines up to full power because the aircraft then becomes very hard to uh, control. So uh, you're always trying to keep a lot of energy available to you. You don't want to put flaps out too early. You don't want to put gear down too early. But uh, then if you leave it all a bit late and you end up very fast, you suffer the problems then of trying to stop the machine on the runway if you don't have a very long runway to land on. Excellent. Well, this crew uh, looks like they did a fantastic job. So our our hats are off to them and their uh, performance of their crew duties. Yeah, it's a great little airplane. And, uh, you know, it, I always thought those four engines were like little APUs, little <laughs> little hair dryers. They're, they're tiny little engines, but, uh, you know, it still makes a big difference when you take two of them away. Yeah, I'd say probably 50% uh, less power. In fact, I think they're... Modified helicopter engines hmm. uh, from memory. I'm not absolutely certain about that. Someone can probably tell me. Yeah, they were saying they were, what was the uh, designation of the engine? LF-507s. I'm, I'm not sure I've ever heard of those. I'm not sure who manufactures them. but um, Well, neither am I. Yeah. And I guess uh, apparently these engines also uh, are uh, problematic when it comes to bleed air extraction and uh, the bleed air. Uh, it seems like a lot of incidents of uh, toxic Air, aerosyndrome or aerotoxic syndrome uh, involve a lot of these uh, BA-146 slash RJ-85s and uh, this this particular engine and plumbing. Um, I, I think I'm right about that. Uh, but um, Yeah, I think you're right too. I, th- I think they don't have the best oil seals in the world. Ah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Got to have the seal. <laughs> Thank you for that, Captain Nick. <laughs> you're welcome, sir. All right, uh, moving on. Um, let's see. Another four-engined aircraft incident. This occurred, uh, it was a My Cargo. Uh, not My Cargo, your cargo? No, uh, My Cargo, M-Y-C-A-R-G-O, 747-400 at um, Maastricht on November 11th, 2017. Runway excursion on takeoff. This from the Aviation Herald. A My Cargo Airlines 747-400 freighter on behalf of Saudi uh, Cargo Airlines registration, blah, 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 was uh, flying from Maastricht, uh, Maastricht? Maastricht. I don't know, I'm, I'm butchering that, Netherlands to Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, was accelerating for takeoff from runway 21 
and when the crew rejected takeoff at low speed and deployed the thrust reversers. The aircraft veered right off the runway, came to a stop with all gear on soft ground to the right of the runway, about 450 meters past the displaced runway threshold, and about 630 meters after the beginning of the takeoff run, about a beam the aiming markers runway 21. There were no injuries. The aircraft received minor, if any, damage. Uh, the Saudi Cargo's parent company, Saudi Arabian Airlines, reported the aircraft suffered an engine problem causing the runway excursion while attempting to take off. There were no injuries and no damage. The Dutch DSB reported they opened an investigation into the runway excursion of a cargo aircraft at the Maastricht airport. And let's see, we have, I was thinking, you know, 747 cargo. I wish we had an APG co-host that flew that particular airplane and <laughs> could comment on what he thought may have happened oh wait a minute hang on we do have one his name miami rick and he did a periscope uh, a twitter video audio video recording uh, regarding this incident and i'm sure that i have his uh, permission to play the audio portion of this on the show and in fact i know for sure that we do so take it away miami rick all right, so, as promised, um, I'm going to tell you guys and gals what I think happened with that uh, 7-4. Don't have a lot of time because i got to get ready. Going to uh, London later today. And so, anyway, let's, let's go right into it. Um, so, the other day, a 7-4 um, went off the side of the runway there at Maastricht, which is that same airport where it was, the uh, uh, what, two, three days ago. And I think I parked right next to that very same 7-4. Um, and so, well, how can you end up off the side of the runway? And it's very simple. So a lot of people think that it's actually harder to deal with a takeoff uh, reject scenario at high speed versus low speed. And actually, it works the other way. It's actually harder to deal, at least in a four-engine airplane, it's actually harder to deal with a takeoff reject um, maneuver <clears throat> at low speed versus high speed. And that is because, um, and I bet you didn't know this, or... I bet you did, but you didn't really kind of you know put two and two together. Um, it's a lot harder to keep directional control at low speed versus high speed, and here's why: the rudder, which is the movable part of the vertical stabilizer on any airplane, um, that doesn't become effective till about 80 knots, aerodynamically effective that is. And so the only thing you have to keep you going straight down the runway is nose wheel steering. Now, how does that work? How do you steer an airplane on the ground? So on the ground, an airplane behaves a lot like a car. So you have you know, a set of steerable wheels at the front of the jet that you actuate via a steering tiller that's either to the right or the left, right next to each pilot position. And that steering tiller gives you about 70 degrees of steering authority, right, on the ground. And so you are cleared attaching to the runway. So you're, you know, you're driving around the airport, you get on the runway, you're clear to line up and wait, you're now pointed straight down the runway, and you're waiting on your takeoff clearance. Now, you're done steering for the day, right? Because uh, you're already there. So you're clear for takeoff, and now what you're going to do to keep the aircraft uh, going straight down the runway is you're now going to use your rudder pedals. Now the rudder pedals do two things. One, clearly control the rudder in the back of the airplane, 
and then two, give you about 7 degrees of steering authority on the nose wheel, and this is on the 747. And don't mind the TV, I'm keeping up with the Kardashians. No, I'm not, just kidding, nobody watches that crap. <laughs> so anyway, you're clear for takeoff, and um, when you are going down the runway now, you're steering the airplane with just 7 degrees of steering authority right and left. Okay, so that's how the steering works, right? Second aspect of this situation here. Aircraft that have four engines, i.e. the 74, you know, the uh, square bus 340s, 380s, and the like. Um, if you have an outboard engine failure at low speed, that is very, very critical indeed, because if you lose an outboard, and then the other outboard is at full takeoff thrust, then that moment arm from the side that has the outboard working versus the side that doesn't is going to have, I mean, you're going to mean that that moment arm is going to be a lot uh, bigger on the side from the, on the side that has the two working engines versus the side that only has the one engine working, right? And so take that into account and add that to the fact that you don't have a lot of control authority or, you know, um, directional control authority and that yaw moment is very, very hard to deal with. And so I think that's kind of what happened here. Now, why did it end off to the side of the runway there? Um, on the 747, and this is one of those quirks that you have to be aware of uh, when you're flying this thing. The way the auto throttle system works in the 747, and basically every other Boeing I've ever flown, um, when you select takeoff thrust, I don't know if you ever noticed this, but just about on any jet, the thrust will come up to about halfway, and it'll be there. For, it'll stay there for a little bit, and then it'll go up to full takeoff thrust, right? And the reason behind that is because you want to make sure that when you go to full takeoff thrust, all engines spool up together, so you get to, you know, all four engines or all two engines or however many engines you have on the, on your jet, they all come up to takeoff thrust together, right? To prevent any loss of directional control, you know, and and this kind of situation. So on the 747. You will bring your thrust levers to about 60% in one, so just about halfway up. You'll wait for the engine to stabilize, and then you'll hit a little button on the front of the takeoff of the um, uh, thrust uh, lever, of the quadrant there. You hit a button there. It's called a toga switch. Not toga as in Roman toga, but toga as in takeoff go around, right? So you hit that button there, and the thrust levers will go up to the pre-selected takeoff thrust setting that you figured out before departure based on your takeoff uh, performance data. So the engines will come up and spool up to takeoff thrust together, right, and you'll start going on down the runway. When you hit that button, the thrust levers will physically move up by themselves. So you, you hit that button, you can let go, and the thrust levers will go up and, and, and basically park themselves on the quadrant, on, on basically physically park themselves at the position where takeoff thrust is based on your pre-selected value. And they'll stay there. The problem is, is that the servos that moved the control, the, the thrust levers to that position, remain engaged, right? And so if you are to bring or move the thrust levers aft, they will return to that pre-selected position up until you get to 80 knots. And that's why on that tweet I put out a couple hours ago, or I don't know how long ago it was, I pointed that little, you know, yellow arrow to that little paddle switch 
And there's two of them. There's one on the left, one on the right, one for each pilot. Um, and that little paddle switch, what that does is that when you push that forward, it'll disengage the auto throttle. And the basic model, that, that, what that'll do is it'll disconnect the servo from the thrust lever, right? So you, now you're f free to move and put that thrust lever wherever it is that you want it. And so the procedure for a low speed takeoff reject scenario is to keep your thumb on the auto throttle disconnect paddle until 80 knots. Once you get to 80 knots, you can move your thumb away. Because if you have an engine failure below 80 knots and you bring the thrust back, the thrust levers back to idle, and you move your hand forward to try to engage the thrust reversers, by the time you let go of the thrust levers and you move your hand to go and reach over for the reach over to the thrust reverse uh, levers there to actuate those, the thrust levers will move back up away from the idle detent. And you cannot physically engage with thrust reversers until the throttle quadrant is at the idle detent. You can't go to a reverse, uh, reverse interlock. And so what you do is you disconnect the auto throttle, bring them to idle, and then that way the thrust levers stay there and you're able to bring the thrust reversers up to the interlock and then obviously deploy them and then bring the speed brake up uh, manually. But you know the speed brake is another thing and it should, it should deploy automatically. So basically that's it. If you forget to disconnect the auto throttle, thrust levers will come back up. You're below 80 knots. Rudder is not effective. You don't have a lot of directional control. You don't have a lot of um, aerodynamic control on the rudder because you're still going pretty slow. And you have to keep in mind that a lot of these runways are only 150, 148 feet wide. And the wheelbase on the 7.4 is uh, 42 feet. Just, just shy of 42 feet. So you have about, what, 50 feet to each side, which is not a lot. So um, if you're not careful, and if you're not following that procedure, keeping your thumb where it should be, and uh, you're, um, you know, all of a sudden this thing happens, and you don't react quickly enough, you'll end up off the side of the runway. And that is what happened, boys and girls. Well, at least I think. All right, that's it from Huntsville. I gotta get uh, to uh, ironing my shirt so I look nice and crisp. And I'll see you all on the other side of the pod. Later. That was the incomparable Miami Rick. And now I'm finally going to play this. There we go. <laughs> oh, we miss you, man. He's a rare breed of Ricket, that is. <laughs> Uh, so I, I don't, what were we talking about? I, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. Um, but it was good to see it. By the way, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. You can watch uh, the actual video of, uh, of Rick in his, uh, hotel studio in Huntsville, uh, as he recorded that. And, uh, Hey, you know, we'll take what we can get from Rick. And if it means stealing his, uh, his, uh, Periscope audio video, then it's what we got to do. <laughs> so. But this is the point where I actually say that this is where Airbus got things uh, right on uh, our aircraft because uh, rather than having to fiddle around with toga buttons and autopilot disconnects and sorry, autothrust disconnects and things during these critical phases, um, we just moved the thrust, thrust levers. So, you know, it's just so instinctive and so simple in comparison that these problems 
are much less common. Um, we we face all the same problems of the aircraft swinging. Uh, if you get a a low speed abort with an engine failure, but all you do is uh, you you bang the thrust levers closed, that disconnects the auto thrust automatically, and now you've got control over. Uh, all the engines immediately, they all come back to idle. You can pull as much thrust reverse as you think you need, but in the low-speed cases, you sh- as soon as you've killed that thrust, the aircraft will stop springing, swinging. You can straighten it up on the nose wheel, steering through the rudder pedals, uh, and um, problem solved. So, I, you know, um, I, I realize that the 7.4 is a previous generation, but, uh, you know, those uh, little intricacies in handling the uh, auto thrust to me seemed way overly complicated. Yeah, but you know, it, it actually in in the description of it, it sounds complicated. But actually, in practical in practical circumstances, that's just like a, almost an instinctive thing for most of us. Apparently, not in this case, but it should be an instinctive thing. You pull the power back, and you at the same time you're doing that, you're hitting that auto throttle disconnect button so that the throttle stay back. And I agree with you, Nick. I'm not sure exactly why you would want. Uh, to uh, use reverse thrust on a, in a low-speed abort situation because, as, as you mentioned, as soon as you pull the power back, uh, you are now have symmetrical thrust situation and uh, you're using your braking, which should be more than enough to stop the airplane safely and, and, and timely. Uh, I think you know going into reverse thrust with an engine failure, now you're just kind of exacerbating the problem. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I suspect it was uh, perhaps a little bit of startle factor. They probably, I don't know if they were going off at an odd time of the day, body clock's pretty uh, lousy, and they probably did instinctive uh, maneuvers, and I just closed the thrust levers, grabbed all the uh, reversers. Perhaps they did or didn't connect that uh, auto thrust and got themselves in a muddle. But uh, for a low speed of all, it's a very calm thing to do. Uh, you just we really just close the thrust levers in a below 70 odd or 80 knots because you've usually got heaps of runway. There's uh, not actually a problem with stopping the airplane. The only problem you've really got is keeping it on the center line. Yep. I agree. So hopefully we'll hear more about that uh, in the uh, in, in subsequent uh, days. Uh, maybe we'll learn more about that from the Dutch uh, investigative uh, board. All right, um, but a great explanation of the in the you know um, Boeing um, auto thrust logic from Rick. Thanks, mate. Yeah, Rick, always good to hear from you. Looking forward to more of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, moving on again, I have a little bit more here in the uh, in the news folder, and uh, both of these remaining two items are basically the same thing relating to uh, the pilot shortage and again you know whether you want to call it a pilot shortage or a pilot pay and benefit shortage or whatever it uh this the same result uh airlines are having issues with finding qualified pilots to fly airplanes and one of the uh impacts is the fact that uh airlines are looking to snag the flight instructors out there teaching other pilots how to fly because they have experience and, um, you know, the, the airlines need these pilots to fill their cockpits. And so, uh, well, let me, let me read this article. This is, uh, from chronicle.com, uh, increasing demand for commercial pilots has increased enrollment in many flight programs and schools across the United States, including those at colleges. 
And while the programs are adding class sections and planes to their fleets to accommodate the influx of students, they're also losing a key to their business, flight instructors. The combination of a growing airline industry, a coming wave of retirements of major airline pilots, and a demand for regional flights has left airlines scrambling to fill their cockpits and quick to poach flight instructors because of their experience. In an attempt to meet the demand and retain pilots, regional airlines have raised their pay, lathered on bonuses, and extended alliances to flight schools. Plenty of schools have partnerships with major airlines and their regional counterparts, but an unintended consequence of enticing new pilots with job placements, bonuses, and a decent work schedule is the shortage of flight instructors. Anyway, it goes on to talk about um, you know, what uh, these schools are doing to try to keep or entice their uh, flight instructors to stay on with them, but uh, it's a losing battle, I think, in a, in a lot of cases. So it's kind of like a vicious circle here where you know the airlines are clamoring for the qualified pilots, but we need flight instructors out there to teach people how to fly, but the flight instructors are the ones that are getting poached as well. Yeah, it, inevitable, because after all, most of those flight instructors are trying to get hours to get into the airlines, and when they're given a chance to um, get them quicker uh, and into a regional, they're going to jump at it. Fred, have you noticed uh, the number of flight instructors where you go and uh, fly reducing? Sorry, Nick, you're breaking up a little bit. I think you're asking if we had noticed the number of flight instructors. I've seen a lot of new ones. and I think uh, I think we, we'll get to it in the next article, but I think especially with the 1,500-hour rule that we there's a lot of, of flight instructors now in that between you know 200 and 1,500 range that are just teaching as much as they can to get there. And so they don't tend to last. Um, so we're seeing definitely seeing a, a, a higher turnover. And if we're seeing pay increases, that uh, means there really is a shortage, right? That's usually the, the metric that people look for. Is you know, It's not the newspaper articles or the tweets. It's really when, when the pay starts going up, you know there's actually a shortage. Um, but man, what a, what a great time to learn to fly or to, you know, if, if, if you're in that pipeline right now to make that your career, that, that's, that th- those are all very, very good signs. Yes. Um, so Fred was alluding to this article that I placed with this one regarding the flight instructor poaching. Um, and, uh, this is from aviationnews.net. Uh, last week, the FAA uh, unveiled an aviation rulemaking committee's long awaited recommendation to modify the 1500 hour training requirement for first officers. The 88 page report comes after two separate panels of aviation stakeholders proposed similar recommendations to create alternative pathways for prospective pilots. The AAAE has been urging, who is the AAAE? Hmm. Anyway, has been urging Congress and the administration to consider alternative pathways to meet the stringent 1,500-hour requirement in an effort to enhance safety and address the pilot shortage, which is adversely adversely impacting commercial air service to small and medium-sized communities. This report may help bolster efforts to address the pilot shortage on on Capitol Hill. The latest recommendations, there are two of them here, uh, to modify the 1,500-hour rule come from the FAA's Air Carrier Training Advisory Rulemaking Committee. That's a mouthful. The ARC is recommending two separate approaches for pilots seeking a restricted airline pilot transport, airline transport pilot certificate. One would give candidates a uniform 250-hour credit for completing an air carrier enhanced qualification program. This would reduce the flight time requirement for military pilots from 750 hours to 500 for pilots with a bachelor's degree from 1,000 to 750, and for pilots with an associate's degree from 1,250 hours to 1,000. 
the Airline Pilots Association, which has resisted efforts to create alternative pathways to help pilots meet the 1,500-hour requirement, endorsed this recommendation. The ARC also came up with a more aggressive recommendation to give pilots different levels of credit for completing an air carrier-sponsored training course. This so-called variable credit approach would reduce the requirement for military pilots from 750 to 500, for pilots with a bachelor's degree from 1,000 to 500, and for pilots with an associate's degree from 1,200 hours to 500. Okay, so that's a much much more aggressive kind of a recommendation. The Regional Airline Association, Airlines for America, Delta Airlines, and other aviation stakeholders on the ARC supported this plan. <laughs> Proponents argue that pilots with less experience would have more to gain from an air carrier-sponsored training course and should be awarded more credit hours. The Airline Pilots Association and the Air Dispatchers Federation have expressed opposition to this last recommendation. In other words, they think that it's just too drastic a cut from the hour requirements. What do you think about this, Brad? Okay, Jeff. Uh, no. AAAE, American Associate of Airport Executives. Oh, thank you. I don't know why that was not in the article. I didn't see it anywhere. <laughs> go, go ahead, Fred. <laughs> why do they get a vote? Uh, no, I, I, I've always wondered why you couldn't trade. I mean, the whole point of this is to get pilots that are better, that are both better, have more experience, and are both better at decision making, right? Ultimately, is, is, is why this rule was increased. And I never understood why you, if you could demonstrate that through experience or a training course, why you couldn't trade experience for hours you know if you complete certain aerobatic courses if you complete certain airline training programs ultimately that's what we're trying to encourage you know there's I, as a passenger you know i'd be really more confident if i knew that the brand new first officer was stepping in the seat of a 737 with with you know 700 hours but with a clear demonstration of ability as opposed to somebody that's just been flying a cessna around in the pattern with students for for you know an extra thousand hours so that the the while that's uh, that's really good training, good experience. It, it's not necessarily uh, the same kind of experience that you'd expect a, a line pilot to have. So I, this feels like it's going in the right direction. I think there's probably a lot of implementation questions and details, but I just wish there was a way that you could take your your pilot resume, your pilot pedigree, and trade more of varied types of experiences into our credits to to get to that seat faster. Now, in your part of the world, Nick, uh, they have something called the, what is it, the multi-crew license, or I'm not sure exactly what the exact name of it is, but uh, they are um, kind of going at it at a, from a different angle. Yeah, I, I'm not an expert in this, Jeff, but I do know that, uh, yeah, if you're going to fly as part of a multi-crew, then uh, you're given dispensation to join that crew as the inexperienced uh, pilot and you generate experience on the job. Um, so long as you've got a, you know, an experienced pilot beside you. So that's kind of how they're getting around that. But I'm a, uh, I think Fred has made a very good point. Um, it's all about um, quality versus quantity. And I just think putting a 1500 hour quantity limit is stupid. Because you can fly 1,500 hours straight level and be not much of a better pilot when you finish than when you started. I think structured training that gives you experience in all the dangerous environments that we fly in, so high level, high angle of attack, um, upset 
aerobatics, all those kind of uh, edge of the envelope stuff is really where you need to be. And if you've got sufficient training in those areas, then I think the totals should be pared down because now you've got quality. Uh, and the quantity bit to me is to a certain extent irrelevant. Of course, you are always going to get uh, experience just flying the airplane and perhaps experiencing different environments, different weathers. But honestly, um, there's not much to be gained in polling around for 1,500 hours straight and level. Very good point. You know, the thing that's always kind of um, frustrated me about this whole thing, and this is uh, in large part due to the uh, aftermath of uh, the Colgan uh, 4507 crash in Buffalo. Um, and I think the the big elephant that's in the room that everybody doesn't want you to look at is the fact that a major part of that accident, you know, experience was part of it. Although people would argue uh, both of those pilots involved in that accident were actually quite, uh, they had a lot of experience. They had, I think each of them had at least 3000 hours apiece um, of, of uh, air carrier time. And the fatigue um, was one of the major factors that I'm not sure was adequately um, addressed, and uh, especially the fact that these were commuters. They were commuting to the job, and uh, both of them had spent a good portion of the day before they started their actual duty time, um, you know, commuting to work, uh, one all the way from Seattle, Washington. Now, I know a lot of people out there listening, especially you airline pilots, uh, commuters are saying, Jeff, just shut up. Don't say anything. <laughs> uh, we don't want you to ruin it for us. And, you know, I'm not a commuter. And so I can, you know, clearly state that um, that I think that you that more should have been done as far as regulate uh, regulatory um, efforts uh, involved with uh, trying to uh, put some restrictions on, you know, how how far you must uh, or how far you can commute or how much time it takes before you start your crew duty day, et cetera. And uh, they kind of just look the other way, I, in my opinion. And uh, I, I know, send all the uh, the bad uh, email to uh, junk at airlinepilotguy.com. <laughs> and uh, you know, no, in, in, uh, so I know that, that uh, you know, sorry, in under EASA rules, uh, you have uh, 75 minutes to get to work. And if you take longer than that, you are supposed to make. Um, uh, well, you're supposed to take a rest before you begin work. Now, that rest is not actually um, quantified, but you have to rest before you start flying to make sure that you're fit again. So, you know, when you've got people uh, commuting in long distances, it actually then becomes illegal for them to fly without taking a rest period before they get in the airplane and start work. Now, that's the EASA rules, and uh, I, I personally think that um, you guys did miss uh, a chance to introduce something similar, perhaps not quite as punitive, uh, after the Buffalo crash. Yeah, I I, I agree, and uh, I know that a lot of people would probably disagree with me, but you know, I think that the, the three major things there was fatigue, uh, competency, and um, qualifications, uh, as far as, uh, currency, not currency, uh, you know, how much, how many hours you have, how, how much experience you have in, uh, flying, uh, air carrier transports. Um, and I think they did a good job with, uh, trying to come up with, a a certain level of, of, uh, experience as far as our hour, hourly requirements. Although 
as Fred stated, you know, and Captain Nick did as well, uh, that it's it's more about the quality and not the quantity. Uh, but uh, in the competency part, uh, there were some issues with, you know, uh, the especially the captain not uh, being the sharpest knife in the drawer and uh, kind of going from one airline to another. And the airlines didn't know um, that this person had some issues with uh, some training events in the past and check rides and that kind of thing. Uh, so I think they've done, they made some good, you know, efforts in, in the direction of trying to make sure that airlines, uh, you know, know when somebody has certain problems and issues with training and that kind of thing. They've addressed that. But again, that, that big elephant in the room for me is the, uh, the commuting thing. And, uh, you know, by the time you start your day, uh, if you've already flown across the country to get to your domicile before you've started your duty is, uh, that's just, I don't know. That's uh that's a major thing in my, in my mind. So hopefully yeah. something will come of that. I mean, that's even assuming you were rested when you left and, you know, there's a, 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 a someone that travels a lot. Like, I mean, we, we do this, right? We'll fly. So we'll take a seven hour flight somewhere. Then we'll go right to work. We'll go right to a customer. We'll go right to an office. And, you're not a hundred percent. And so, um, and then that, the overtime that takes, that takes a bigger toll. So no, I agree, Jeff, I think, uh, and I don't know how you would address something like that, but that was definitely something that was, uh, yeah, was contributing there. Uh, but if they, re- if they do reduce the number of required hours though, that's going to accentuate that flight instructor, uh, problem as well, because now going to have a lot more people that are ready to go that are going to go. Yeah. They're going to bail and they're going to bail. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm not <laughs> not sure exactly how this whole issue is going to be resolved, but um, they're they're trying. All right, well that was the news, and now it's time for the best part of the show: your feedback. Captain, incoming message. All right. Um, this first one was um, interesting. This is sent in by uh, from David Harrison from Dewsbury, soon to be relocated to Leeds in Yorkshire. Um, this from the BBC.com, uh, the, the article that he references. Uh, Hi, Jeff and the rest of the APG crew. I've just read a story on the BBC News website after a flight from Glasgow to Crete with only one passenger on board. The article states that it's not unusual at the end of the holiday uh, vacation season to carry so few passengers. Does this happen to you, Nick or Dana? Dana's not here with us, uh, whereby you only carry a few passengers. Good podcast, by the way. I really like listening to Plain Tales. Regards, David. And uh, this BBC article uh, shows this woman, Karen Grieve, uh, was given the VIP treatment because she uh, just paid 46 pounds for a flight to Crete. And she was the only passenger on board. Apparently, uh, initially, she was going to be one of three, uh, but two of them didn't show up. So this was on Jet 2. And uh, the company said it's not unusual for the final flight of the season to have fewer bookings than normal. Uh, Ms. Grieve, who was traveling to Crete to write a crime novel, said it was immediately obvious that there were very few passengers when she turned up at the airport for her 1630 flight on Sunday. And uh, so anyway, she got the uh, uh, the VIP treatment from the flight crew. And uh, uh, David's question is to us, Captain Nick, uh, how often does this happen? Have you ever had a flight where you only had one passenger on board? 
Um, I've had very few passengers, uh, literally a handful, uh, four or five, and but they're generally on sort of Christmas Day flights when no one's really traveling. Everyone's, uh, um, you know, at home with their families. And uh, so you're flying out to somewhere um, where obviously uh, there aren't a lot of uh, people from other faiths flying. Um, so, yeah, it can be extremely quiet. And um, it's quite common for us to uh, move them all up to the front end of the airplane, uh, which is great for the, those who are down in economy. Um, and it also helps the cabin crew because it means they uh, only have to man sort of one little bit of the airplane. And, um, you know, it's usually free wine and everything for everybody or the whole flight. And it usually turns out to be a great little party. Um, on the other hand, because it does depend a bit on the crew. On the other hand, I have flown an aircraft back with no passengers at all and a full crew, and it was an overnight flight. And, um, you know, we're sitting up there on the flight deck. There's only two of us. Uh, we kind of rely on the cabin crew to pop in every now and again and um, you know, offer us a cup of tea or a bite to eat or things because we don't have the time to go back and make it ourselves. And uh, we don't know where it all is in the galley anyway. It's kind of a, a mystery back there. Um, and of course, that flight was, <laughs> we hardly saw anybody, the whole flight. You know? What? You're expecting, yeah, you're expecting them to be up all the time. No, they all tucked themselves into uh, the <laughs> upper class uh, chairs and all went to sleep. <laughs> Darn them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, you'd think they would have gone, well, it's actually important to keep these blokes awake. But I think we were the only two awake on the entire aircraft. <laughs> wow. I would have expected the same, uh, not that, but the other that you were expecting, like you would have people up there all the time, keeping you awake, feeding you, doing all kinds of stuff, but no. No, they completely ignored wow. us. <laughs> I only had one flight that I can recall that uh, it was on the my 727 days and we were, we'd fly from Atlanta to Albany, New York, and then we continued to Portland, Maine. And I think we we had a, a just a handful of passengers for the first part of the flight and most of them got off with the exception of one person from that short hop from albany new york to portland maine uh, one passenger and so we went back and gave them a personalized briefing um and uh, didn't have to use the pa uh but it was uh not not very common yeah i've done that one time um and it's awesome <laughs> we were uh i'm gonna date myself here but we took a an air canada 747 so that's probably a long time ago from toronto to montreal where there's three of us on board and it, it I, just absolutely awesome takeoff you know full power empty 747 wow and i bet you you got uh personalized yeah, service was, there didn't you it was a 40 minute flight but yeah we um but no, this is the 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 you, you just you're just so used to the seven four seven being the sort of lumbering, slow, very measured, and this was just we just rocketed out of there. It was it was awesome. It was like a seven five seven, but bigger. All uh, right. Um, so thanks, David. For yeah, I must admit it, it is fun, uh, isn't it, uh, Fred? When you get a nearly empty airplane, you can use lots of thrust. I do remember taking. Uh, uh, a completely empty um, 340, and this was the 300, the little engine one. We were only taking it to um, France, I think, to Bordeaux. Um, they were going to refit the cabin, 
Uh, we didn't even have a cabin crew member. It was just the two pilots, which is like the weirdest feeling in the world um, because there's this pretty big aeroplane. I mean, it, it's, it's in fact, it's vast, um, and there's just the two of you. Uh, I guess it's what cargo pilots do all the time, but for us it felt weird. And, of course, uh, we only got like 15 tonnes of fuel uh, and nothing in the cargo holds, uh, and... Uh, uh, it was uh, a wet day, so I said uh, to my first officer, "Hmm, that, that water looks pretty bad. Should we, um, well, should we say that's contaminated?" And he says, "Yeah, yeah, I think we should. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> so I, we, I think we should do a toga takeoff." It's just, oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not kidding. Even with those four little hair dryers, that damn thing leapt off the runway, and, and uh, you know we were battling, and Heathrow were going. Oh, but <laughs> you all right? <laughs> yeah, we're fun, thanks. We're having fun. It was great. It got their attention. That airplane is doing something they've never seen do before. <laughs> no, no, it was. It, we, I think we had. Yeah, we had about just over twenty degrees nose up to try and uh, keep the speed under control. It was great ah, fun. twenty degrees. That's standard for my airplane. Oh, yes. <laughs> At least one thing that I can say about the Mad Dog, or. Uh, our initial uh, pitch attitudes, 20 degrees, and uh, it's a it's a pretty good performer um, getting away from the ground, even when it's heavy, but uh, especially when it's lightweight. Uh, it's cool. All right. Great fun. Great fun. In every every student pilot, right? That first time that your instructor steps out of the Cessna 152 or 172 and you fly by yourself, it feels like you're flying a jet, right? It's just twice the performances when 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 you're just alone in the airplane when, than when the instructor's yeah. in there with you. So. <laughs> That's true. All right, uh, moving on, Norbert, uh, he wrote in a while back talking about this uh, event, a 5K on the fifth runway in Atlanta. He said, uh, it's taken me far too long to get you these videos and pictures from the 5K on the fifth runway at Atlanta a few weeks ago. Other than the super early wake-up time, the event was great. The early start meant that it was dark on the runway for the entire run. While still a neat experience, I would have preferred they shifted the run an hour later so that we could get some true feeling and scale of running on the runway, but I get the logistical need for the timing. The sun did start to come up toward the tail end of the run. I finished in exactly 30 minutes, so there was plenty of time for pictures and some fun on the runway before we were ushered off of it and into the airport fire station. Everyone had to be off the runway by 7.30 a.m. and so that it could be cleared and reopened by 8, and flights started to land at 8.15 on the nose. During the award ceremony in the fire station, the staff and security were pretty great about letting people stand near the end of the fire station's driveway so we could watch the planes land and start the long journey to taxi from runway 5 to the terminal. If you've ever landed on, and he's referring to runway 1028, the southernmost runway in Atlanta. If you've ever landed on the fifth runway in Atlanta, you'll know what I mean, especially if you didn't if you didn't take advantage of access to the bathroom right before descent and landing. <laughs> Gotta hold it. Uh, I've definitely been doing the PP dance in my seat a couple of times during the long ride to the terminal from that runway. I digress, though. Below is a link to a Google Drive with some pictures and videos from the run, runway, fun, right after, and some planes that were landing. It was pretty awesome to be that close to the active planes and runway without having to be an airport employee or worry about being arrested for trespassing. Feel free to share with the group, and I'm going to do that. That'll be in the show notes. And in fact, I'm going to go ahead and put that link in the live chat for those of you who want to look at it now. Uh, that was Norbert's 
video and photos of the uh, 5K on the fifth runway in Atlanta last month. Thank you, Norbert, for giving us a, uh, um, what is the word I'm looking for? A uh, something. Thanks for sending that in. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wonder if they had the runway lights on for them. That would have been fun, wouldn't it? I would have so. through no, the I'm runway looking, lights. I'm looking at the uh, photos just in his drive folder, and it looks like, yes, the uh, the green centerline taxiway lights were on, and it appears that the uh, the runway lights were on as well. Uh, but I, I, you're, I'm, I'm thinking that you might be suspecting that they wouldn't because then, you know, you wouldn't have a, a stray airplane trying to land on a runway that's lighted. I don't know. I don't know. Do Air Canada go to Atlanta very often? <laughs> no, thank goodness. No, I, well, I think they do, yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, no. Uh-oh. Turn those lights off. <laughs> Quick. <laughs> That's just not fair, Nick. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I, I can make that joke because my sister-in-law works for them. Okay. Well, here's one. <laughs> Image 2992. Oh, how appropriate. That's the uh, standard datum plane uh inches of mercury that we use when we're in the uh, positive space, um, positive, yeah, positive space uh, structure uh, above 18,000 feet in the U.S. Um, anyway, this this one image here, I think this is Norbert on the center line um, on his stomach with his arms out. Uh, that might be the might be the image for this or the cover image for uh, episode 298. I love that. Excellent. Yeah. Anyway, check it out if you uh, if you want. And let's see. Let's move on to um, Tea Kettle 15. And that's all I know about this person. I would pronounce that Tea Kettle 1-5. But oh, Tea Kettle 1-5. I think it's 1-5. Okay. It, 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 it sounds like a call sign, like, uh, you know, Cougar 1-2. Oh, okay. It, 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 that's what a Navy pilot feels like to me. Maybe I'll write it and tell us, but I... I I think you might be right, Red. Let's see. He says, hey, Captain Jeff, just writing to say thanks for your great podcast. It seems clear to me that you do it out of love for aviation. That love shows in your podcasts. Well, great. I'm glad that you can sense that because uh, all of us here, T-Kettle 1-5, uh, are doing this for a love of sharing our passion for flying. Um, he says, I enjoy the show and actually helps me in my day job as a test pilot. Oh, yeah, you might be right, Fred. My job involves ensuring aircraft meet certain engineering standards, but overshadowing those ones and O's is a concept called mission relation. That is, considering the effect of any particular aircraft characteristic on how it will affect the pilot performing the aircraft's mission. Having grown up in the aviation and the military, 23 years in the U.S. Navy, most as a test pilot, and never having served as an airline pilot, I'm now involved in certifying aircraft for airline use and other types of aircraft and missions too, without having had the benefit of airline flying. Listening to your show helps me understand some of the intricacies of the airline mission, some of the challenges. For that, I thank you very much. You helped me do a better job mission relating. Thanks for the great work. Signed, T Kettle 15. Well, I'm glad that we can now add that to our our uh, list of uh, of things that we do here at the Airline Pilot Guy Show. Mission relating. That's exactly right. I can't wait to do my next mission on the way home. (laughs) 
Very cool. Thank you, uh, Tea Kettle One Five, for your kind words, and I'm glad that we're helping you out in what you're doing. Um, Sean sent a link to a Facebook page where somebody had taken their cell phone and uh, took a video. I think it was a Southwest Airlines. I'm not going to play it right now because it's just basically you can hear what's going on inside the cabin and there's some kind of an announcement being made. But I think this airplane is either taxiing in or taxiing out. Uh, But there is a wing walker on the side um, watching one of the wings. I guess I'm guessing the left wing. And he is dancing and he is just putting on quite a show. And it's uh, really, really hysterical. You should watch it. Um, He understands that people in the airplane are watching him. And uh, I guess this was, uh, according to Terry McBride uh, on Facebook. So this just happened out my window as I was leaving New York, headed back to Nashville. So I guess they were pushing back. This guy rocks. And uh, again, one of the uh, ramp workers at in New York, um, a Southwest Airlines flight. So I'll put that link in the show notes so you can all see it. It's pretty funny. No, I'm going to pour a little bit of cold water on this. Uh, We've um, had a wingtip walker who failed to do his job properly, and we uh, had one of our wings of one of our Acme Red aircraft driven into a blast wall by the tug driver. Um, And Uh uh, at Heathrow recently, they had a wingtip walker who didn't do his job, and uh, because when I was up in the tower, Adam Spink showed me, uh, pointed out a, a building that had been whacked by a wingtip. So uh, much as I appreciate everyone having fun, um, I hope he's doing his job as well. Yeah, that's a good point. So those uh, incidents that, to which you referred um, involved people d- dancing as well? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they were doing the foxtrot. <laughs> and then they were running really fast when the wingtip hit whatever it was not supposed yeah, they to. Yeah, <laughs> they were running away, yes. <laughs> run away, run away. Anyway, it's cute. It but is cute. Point well taken. Uh, you need to be out there doing your job, most <laughs> most importantly. Uh, but if you could have some fun doing it, that's... Uh, why not, yeah. yeah. Yeah, why not? Okay, but it is serious business, right? Well, it, it is like... $200 million worth of machine you're guiding out there. So yeah. Yeah. Take it a little seriously guys. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Willem, Willem Jan, um, sent in a link, uh, a Vimeo.com, uh, video. Uh, I think this was produced by Nats. Um, this was a beautiful data visual visualization of a drone incident at Gatwick in July. And again, uh, the link will be in the show note. Show notes. Um, Willem says, I think that the clip shows in a beautiful way how drones can impact traffic around an airport. Too bad they didn't show the total delay caused and the estimated extra fuel cost. On the show, you've talked about the risks of collisions, but it might also be good to also talk about the effects of drones when people are working to avoid those collisions. Very good point. Um, so again, this... Uh, this video shows what happened when there was a drone sighting near Gatwick um, in July of this year and uh, the disruption it caused. It was a major disruption. Uh, were you flying at the – well, you you normally fly into Heathrow, so maybe you weren't flying at this time. Oh, I was uh, actually but uh, uh, going into Heathrow, but we did hear about the problems and there were people diverting 
um, because they didn't have enough fuel to hold off. And, of course, the air traffickers are pretty stymied when you get a sighting that's likely to affect the approach path because they can't see it on radar. And uh, until they're sure it is no longer a threat, they are pretty much obliged to uh, send everyone around, which is what they did. So, Mm -hmm. of course, it caused enormous disruption uh, just from some idiot uh, who was, uh, I don't know what he was trying to do with it, but it was way too close to the uh, approach path in the airport. And uh, and then having decided it was okay, the landings continued, and then, lo and behold, this guy got it airborne a second time. And, uh, of course, they had to do it all over again. So, I mean, you nice. just want to tear your hair out. <laughs> So um, as a drone operator, uh, Fred, what, what do you think of all of this? Uh, we usually fly under things, so, you know, we never really get a high. But I, I, um, <laughs> I know. It's funny, though. I, I live in the San Francisco uh, Class Bravo uh, to the ground, the surface area. And um, they were selling a house across from mine. And the photographer came with this big DJI uh, Inspire and took off. We could see the airport. And we could see the airplanes. And, and so uh, it, it really is... Um, you know, oftentimes, and I know this is going to sound, I'm not defending anyone here, but oftentimes the, the I, I don't like to call them drone operators because that makes them sound like they're qualified, but the, the people flying those drones uh, just don't know. And they just don't have the mm-hmm. awareness, you know, they, they see the airport, but there's no airplane where they're flying. And so they think it's okay. And, you know, that's why yeah. they do it repeatedly. And they just, until somebody goes there and tells them, they just don't know. And I, I don't know how we tackle something like that. It's definitely not skill. It's definitely not. It's just lack of awareness and maybe a little bit of ignorance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's the and, and that's a tough nut to crack. I mean, how do you how do you, you know, the guy that goes to the Best Buy or whatever store and buys one of these drones and doesn't bother. Nobody reads manuals or information. They just kind of pull it out, put it together, and start flying it. And how do you get to those people? To, well, you, know, well, you don't, that. but the next generation of drones, I mean, drones don't last forever, do they? They eventually break and you've got to buy a new one. Well, and, and I'm going to defend Fred here because I don't care what airspace he flies in. That drone he was flying around rarely came more than 18 inches above the ground. Um, no, uh, if, if the next generation should have software in it uh, that physically prevents it from being flown, um, you know, near uh, or in uh, restricted airspace. And that's the way you tackle it. Now, there are always ways to hack, but the great majority of the general public who buy drones for fun won't have that knowledge. So they will just go, oh, my drone's not flying. I better go somewhere that's safe. And off they'll go and do it. So that's how you do it. There are some exceptions, though. You know, we, we get a lot of guys to trying to filming, you know, well, in our area, it's usually fires. Uh, or traffic accidents, and in an area where you know you're going to have emergency services or low-flying things, that that's inexcusable. In and around an airport where the airplanes really aren't anywhere near the ground, even if in a in a surface class Bravo airspace in San Francisco, that's a little bit more understandable. Um, I even uh, I you know sometimes we see these YouTube videos, especially for us people go flying around the Golden Gate Bridge. And everybody puts negative comments. I always come and say, hey, man, I fly my airplane where you fly your drone. You're welcome to come fly with me anytime. We'll hop in an airplane and I'll fly you around to show you. I've had exactly zero takers. Now, that may be more a comment on my flying style than anything else, but um, <laughs> it's, it's hard. And it's hard to breach. You know, this is why I have a hard time sometimes with, with considering this aviation, because it's hard to breach that gap between, you know, 
I have more in common with you guys in the flying that I do than they do with me. And that gap is even bigger. So it's hard to breach that divide and bring these, let's call them drone pilots or drone operators for now, into the aviation world because what they do is just so different. So uh, I, I know it's easy to, 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 to feel a little bit of outrage when we see this stuff, but it's, it's not an easy issue to solve. And I think, I think we just need to do more. That was a prepared response, by the way, because we get that question a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bet you do. I'll bet you do. You know, um, and I think we'll we'll cover this on the next show. Uh, Liz sent in an article regarding uh, an interesting use of um, unmanned aerial vehicles or UAVs or drones, uh, the easiest way to describe them, in, uh, in Ontario, where they're uh, using them to fly along highways to kind of take pictures of people in uh, high occupancy vehicle lanes, HOV lanes to see, uh, you know, to kind of bust people that are uh, breaking the rules. And uh, so, I mean, there's, there are a lot of great uses for these things. Um, but uh, yeah, that uh, the issue to solve, as you mentioned, Fred, is the education one and in, in informing people, you know, that uh, what they're doing with these things may actually significantly impact other people. Yeah, there's a huge, huge controversy too in uh, in our in our very, very small community um, about there's some guys in Vancouver that flew over a bridge. There's some very famous, and I I think it's Simon Fraser. I'm not sure. Please don't write in if I'm wrong. But that that one big white bridge that comes out north of Vancouver, and um, they were fine. They were diving the um, the pillars of the bridge. They were flying over traffic. Now, obviously, nothing went wrong, uh, but it stirred up a lot of controversy in terms of, of safety and of something falling through. Uh, falling through a window, but just by looking at the comments, there's just not enough awareness and education, even within our community. And most people thought it was really cool. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. uh, it was, it's been, it's been, and that's really the bottom line. Really, it was it cool. Was cool. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a, and it was cool in the dude, cool, you know, kind of sense. So, yeah. <laughs> well, absolutely. I, I saw that video of, uh, the guys flying uh, a drone around a, a, a big freight train. I don't know if you saw that, Fred. That looked just so much fun because he was basically formating on this. He was just formating on this freight train. And as it went under bridges, he was diving this drone under bridges, going up and down the freight train, and which I just thought, oh, that must be brilliant. But, uh, of course, you know, it has ramifications. If, uh, if it was a passenger train, for example, you could send it in through a window and hurt someone. I don't know. But, uh, it, geez, it looked good. Yeah, that went. That one's, that one's exhilarating because when you're flying, you, you're focused on the train uh, and you're always terrified that you're going to run out either of control range or video range, right? Those things don't fly that far. And so it's, it's, it, it's pretty, in terms of your own spatial orientation when you're doing this, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. Well, it sounds like a, you said, you know, the guy that did the video. It's a very small, but again, remember guys, the Venn diagram of flies drones and has a girlfriend is very small. <laughs> We're not necessarily expecting the, those guys to have the best judgment. It's also, there's another Venn diagram, which is has $2,000 and has a ton of time. And fortunately that, that intersection is quite big. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. You know, I should have done, I should have played this before oh, we, we started talking. Yes. I finally get the sound. We have more. Uh, now, this this involves uh, a, a drone, but not the kind of drones that we have just been talking about. Personal, small uh, drone. Th- this is a, a like a big, like real 
military drone. Uh, let's see. Seth sent this in. He said, uh, after the recent discussions on the first commercial drone strike, I thought I would share the story from 2011. And uh, he said, I flew into the landing zone. This occurred at just after it happened. The C-130 that took the damage was there for almost a year undergoing major repairs. Just thought it would be good context for the continuing discussion on drones versus transport category aircraft. Again, that's from Seth. And uh, he sent this uh, article in from defensetech.org. Midair collision between a C-130 and a UAV. And uh, it was a small RQ-7 shadow UAV apparently collided with what looks like it might be an Air Force Special Operations Command MC-130 in the skies over Afghanistan. And again, this was back in 2011. And uh, so we'll put a link to that um, incident in the show notes, this article in the show notes. But uh, man, the C-130 is a beefy airplane. And you should see the pictures of the damage of the leading edge of the uh, left wing, it appears. Uh, good chunk of that wing was uh, taken out. Yeah, it was a good job to get it between the engines like that. So it, it looks like he, he perfectly positioned between two engines and didn't hit either of them, I guess. Yeah. But uh, golly, he, uh, he took out the um, the spar and the wing box. So uh, bloody lucky uh, that uh, that wing didn't fold. Yeah, it's a good thing it was a C-130 because that's a beefy airplane. It takes a lot yeah. to take one of those things down. Uh, yeah. But you would have assumed the military would have had adequate um, procedures to separate their unmanned vehicles and their manned vehicles. Uh, but I guess the early generation of UAVs probably wasn't that well equipped with um, transponders or equivalent, uh, so that perhaps it wasn't that easy to spot. And perhaps they hadn't actually talked to each other about, we're flying our drones over here today. <laughs> So oh, we fly our C-130 there as well. <laughs> so, Nick, I fly with a lot of guys that um, are uh, reservists and National Guard, Air National Guard guys, and uh, and some that have just recently ended their uh, full-time military careers and have come on with ACME. And uh, so a lot of these guys I fly with have flown over there in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, and he said that that is the thing that scares them the most, not enemy fire but flying around all these darn drones he said they're everywhere and everybody is scared silly that they're gonna this is gonna happen to them and they're gonna get taken down um i don't yeah. believe it and an rq7 is tiny i mean it's uh something you can launch off the back of a pickup truck so it's uh it's not it's not the size of a cessna i mean it's a uh, it's gray it's tiny it's probably very very difficult to see wow Anyway, thanks, Seth, for sending that in and scaring us even more. Um, By the way, you know, just while we're yeah. on the subject, could could I recommend uh, Marcus's one of Marcus's latest uh, Omega Tau uh, interviews? No, we're not going to talk about, about that show uh, on. We're not talking about that show on our, our show. No way. I don't even know who this guy oh. is, and oh, uh, Omega no. Tau Beta, whatever. What is that? No, I'm just kidding. It's a great yeah, podcast. I know it's, it's weird. <laughs> yes, please, please mention well, it, Marcus. Marcus Volter has just done one all about uh, a UAV manufacturer and uh, very clever stuff. Uh, fascinating bloke. And uh, if you've got an interest in the technology behind UAVs, it's worth going and listen how actually they can make the podcast last that long about UAVs. I'm not sure I still haven't finished it, but <laughs> it's, it's very good. 
I'm still upset with Marcus because he's the one that introduced you to the world of podcasting, and I'm I'm still you know you haven't forgiven him yet. No, I have not forgiven him for that. <laughs> oh, damn, poor Marcus! You don't ever forget your first one, right, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm told. <laughs> okay. Um, I have to go. That's what she said. But his buttons aren't working today. Oh, was I supposed to push a button? I'm sorry. I was uh, moving forward to the. That's also that's also what she said. Right? <laughs> yeah, that is. Okay, here we go. That's what she said. All right. Hey. Yay. <laughs> okay. Um. Let's let's hear some audio uh, feedback from Radio Roger. Greetings, APGers. Roger Stern here, aka Radio Roger. I have a question about an aviation story I actually covered myself as a reporter, but given my deadline, I was never able to answer one question. It concerns JetBlue Flight 877, which departed Boston's Logan Airport bound for Las Vegas on October 23rd. I've attached the link to the Aviation Herald article. Shortly after takeoff, the crew of the Airbus A320 reported a bird strike and declared an emergency because there was concern that one of the engines could have been affected. The flight was given immediate clearance to return to the airport and land. But the crew needed time to dump fuel and go through the checklist. In all, they requested half an hour of time during which the weather in Boston deteriorated. In consultation with the airline, the captain elected to divert to JFK in New York and flew at a slower than normal speed. I believe they circled over Long Island to dump more fuel and then landed at JFK without incident a little more than two hours after leaving Boston. The Herald mistakenly said it was three hours. I was frankly surprised that a captain flying under emergency conditions who is not over the middle of an ocean would elect to stay airborne that long. Is that unusual? Are there situations in which landing might be more risky than flying so that a captain would prolong his time in the air in order to ensure the safest possible outcome? Let me know what you think. This is Radio Roger over and out. Uh, I... I'd hear, I'd had listened to that um, uh, bit of feedback from Radio Roger, and by the way, uh, Roger, yeah, I am going to take you up on your very kind invitation to spend a day with you uh, reporting the news around New York. I think that'd be great fun, but I just haven't had the uh, time recently. However, let's do it in the near future. Um, it, do you want me to comment on that, Jeff? Sorry, yes, was that please. your question? Yes, yes. Um, so the guys. Uh, between the devil and the deep, you see a little bit. Once you've decided that uh, you might have taken a bird and you've declared an emergency, um, you're obviously then going to try and land back where you came from, and uh, you then have to weigh up the danger of landing overweight and possibly damaging the aircraft as a result, and also perhaps uh, if the runway there is a bit short, uh, running off the end compared with uh, staying airborne with a possibly damaged engine. Now, I don't know how they knew it had gone down the engine or whether they were just guessing whether they had indication problems, but regardless, they've still, even if that engine completely fails, they've still got another one. So it, it's not too bad at the moment, but they have decided that they're going to return. And then, of course, the weather becomes uh, too bad for them to actually return. <laughs> then you're going, oh, damn, what do I do now? So, uh, yeah, it's a difficult decision. If he had gone straight in and landed overweight uh, and got away with it, everyone would have been very happy with him. Uh, having elected to burn off, everyone, if he'd then been able to land, everyone would have been happy with that. 
But of course, having elected to burn off and then found he couldn't land because the weather was now out of limits, then you, you, life just becomes difficult. Where he goes to divert to then, and depending on the weathers and uh, what advice he's given, it just becomes sensible. But it's sort of a compounding situation. He didn't have to a lot of control over what he was going to have to do, except for that first decision. Do I, uh, do I assume I've possibly damaged the aircraft and declare an emergency, or do I just carry on to my destination regardless and have a look at it when I get on the ground? Um, that was the kind of first decision. The rest of it afterwards is like a cascade. And uh, if he ends up diverting a very long way with a possibly damaged engine, I mean, that's just tough. Uh, that's that's kind of what happens uh, if all the alternatives are taken away from you. So, no, not ideal. Uh, but uh, and in looking hindsight, I think he probably, if he just turned around and landed straight away without burning, trying to burn off fuel and get all his checks done, and they just decided, right, this engine could fail, I'm just going to put it straight back on the ground. That probably would have been the best decision. But that's with the element of hindsight. Um, I don't know what you think about that. I agree with you. Um, in this case, they they think they hit a flock of birds. They're guessing that they did, and it may have hit one of their engines. But, you know, I don't know about you, Captain Nick, but I've had a bird ingestion in an engine, and you know when a bird, even a small one, has been ingested into your engine because you get that uh, very distinctive odor of protein oh, burning, yeah, like the, hair. The, have you ever smelled hair burning? <laughs> Uh, but it's that and oh, yeah. worse because then you get all the guts and everything else that are being cooked by the engine and it is drawn in, you know, from the extracted bleed air system. I guess the only airplane that wouldn't have this situation, at least presently, would be the uh, Dreamliner because it doesn't use a uh, bleed air extraction to uh, pressurize the airplane. But, you know, in, in most airplanes out there, when you suck a bird into an engine, um, it's very, very evident uh, immediately, if if not by the engine indica indications uh, that definite um, putrid smell in the uh, air conditioning system uh, but that's, i think that they re true. they re go ahead nick no i was just going to say even if you've taken a bird though the engine can quite often cope with it and spit it out the back with no significant damage uh, all right. you need to do on the next turn around is have it boroscoped make sure there's no blades that have been uh, bent out of shape, and uh, away you go again. Uh, so in, until there is something physically uh, on his engine indications, uh, for example, the vibration uh, of the discs going up, which is what tends to happen if you whack a bird with a big fan, uh, you often notice the engine vibrations uh, start to increase. Then you have a positive indication that you took it on board. Or oh, the smell. I mean, I have to say I've hit a few birds. It's not evident. Uh, perhaps it's just the style of our... Um, air conditioning, but sometimes it's not evident from a smell. Okay. All right. Uh, so uh, we just have to assume, because we don't have all the details uh, here in this uh, report in the Aviation Herald, that uh, there were no adverse um, engine indications or any other indications that would give the crew cause for concern to immediately get the airplane uh, back on the ground. They know that they hit something. Um, but uh, controllability wasn't a problem. The engine seems to be operating normally. And then, as Captain Nick said, okay, now we're looking at the weather. Uh, do we go back to Boston where the weather's not very good, or we continue down uh, over to Kennedy, which is not that far from Boston. It's a pretty quick flight, um, and uh, the, the weather is much better there. So I think that uh, what they did was the, the right thing to do. And uh, if, they, if it's not a full-scale, got to get this thing down on the ground as fast as we can, 
then why not, you know, burn the fuel off to get that weight down so you don't have a possible, you know, uh, other issue to deal with as far as overweight landing. Yep, exactly right. I have a question. This is actually a good example. I wonder this a lot, um, especially in these situations where, like you said, Jeff, you know, there's no controllability issue, there's no engine indication, there's no any other, you know, it's a suspected condition, which is where's the line between urgency and emergency here, you know, in terms of, of um, the decision flow and, and what you call air traffic control with, because there's no, I mean, technically there's no emergency yet, right? This is all precautionary. And if you declare an emergency mm-hmm. that requires a completely different type of handling. So it, it seems that even though in the books, there's two levels that in practice, people just go right to the, I'm declaring an emergency and I want priority handling. So I think a lot of it has to do with the airline operating um, procedures and uh, the protocols involved. I believe with um, this airline and um, American Airlines, that any time that they have to, regardless of what the reason is, if they ever have to make um, a landing, uh, overweight landing, that is, or even if, if you think you might end up landing overweight, that is an automatic emergency um, call. And I'm not sure you know, if you ask me if that's a, uh, appropriate. Uh, I don't think so. But uh, it seems more like an, a, a precautionary kind of a situation where you might need, you know, uh, special handling perhaps, but not necessarily full blown. I got to get on the ground, you know, hairs on fire. Let's get, um, so, um, but I, I think that de- it, it, uh, depends on the airline, uh, whether or not you must declare an emergency, but I know that, uh, there are some out there that, uh, do require it. Um, I guess just to be on the side of, you know, safety, I guess, I don't know, but, uh, that's a good question that there is a line there. And, um, you know, so so to take this uh, situation over to Europe, and so are you going? You hit a flock of gulls, and you don't notice any anomalies with your engines or controllability, whatever. But you know that you should probably fly around a little bit to burn off that fuel to keep from landing overweight. Are you going to declare on the radio Mayday, Mayday, Mayday? Uh, don't think so. I mean, I think you'd be crazy to do that, wouldn't you, Captain Nick? Yeah, that's exactly right. For us, um, a mayday means uh, the life is in danger, basically. Um, so uh, I would declare a pan, 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 pan. And that just means it's a level of urgency rather than uh, danger. And uh, you'll be given a level of priority, but not the same level of priority that you would if you were declared a mayday. In reality, because there's not heaps of pans, guys with pans flying around all the time, you're probably going to get a pretty high level of priority. But um, the idea is that if there's a guy with a pan and then someone else declares a mayday, the guy with the pan steps aside and lets the mayday aircraft um, do his thing and he gets the next level of of um, control so uh that's the whole reason for it i mean uh i personally like it but it's all the one i grew up with that's the reason i like it so i understand the ramifications and of course same thing doesn't really apply over here there's only one level of um an emergency and that's say i am declaring an emergency uh and that's it it's cut, yeah, cut and, and dry in the military um in my air force days we did have a, a another level uh, that we called a precautionary and that kind of equates with a pan 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 kind of a situation uh but you're right 
Captain Nick, in this world over here, uh, it's either you're declaring an emergency or you're not, you know? Yeah. So, um, it's, uh, the only other thing that we have is when we have, uh, fuel states, uh, if you have a, uh, if you declare a minimum fuel, that's not, uh, an emergency situation. But if you, if, if you're in a situation where you think you're going to land with, uh, your emergency reserve or less then you would, uh, declare a fuel emergency in that case. But, uh, uh in the world of, uh, malfunctions, as far as I know, uh, here in the United States, it's either you declare an emergency or you don't. Yeah. You guys know the origin of those two expressions of the pan pan and the mayday? From I the French. I believe we've talked about it. Yeah, it's a French. Um, so pan is the French word for breakdown, straight up. And you don't spell it the same, but you say it the same. And mayday means help me in French. Oh, mayday or something like mayday, that? Mayday, like M apostrophe and then aid, aid. Aid is the word for help. That's straight up what it means. And it makes sense when you think about how you should use those expressions as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. Yeah. For example, if I had a passenger on board with a heart attack, I would declare a mayday because uh, there is life at danger. If I had a passenger on board with uh, a broken arm, I would declare a pan because you're not going to die of a broken arm, but on the other hand, you want to get the airplane on the ground and get medical assistance to them as soon as possible. So for me, that's kind of another indication of the two levels of, uh, of declaring an emergency in Europe. It's, you know, it's too bad we can't get this all, like we can all be on the same page. Maybe eventually that will happen. Maybe, maybe they'll get together and say, you know what, we need to standardize this. All right. Uh, you know, I skipped this on our uh, show notes uh, because I didn't have an actual tab for this. Uh, this was some audio feedback sent in uh, by Brandon, and uh, it's been a while since I've listened to it, so I'm going to have to uh, listen to it myself again. Here we go. Hey, ABG crew. This is Brandon. I've uh, been listening for a couple of years now and first time leaving a recording, but just wanted to share a little story. I finally got a chance to ride on a mad dog last weekend out of Houston. Was excited because after hearing about it so much from the from the podcast, I was interested to to ride on it again. And we got on board, sat down. Then they come through and say that there's a warning light in the cockpit saying that one of the doors isn't latching, so got delayed. Which was I just had to sit back and chuckle because of all the stories you guys have with the mad dogs, but I just thought it was funny. And a little story for Dr. Steph, we flew up to Washington, D.C. for the Marine Corps Marathon. My girlfriend ran in it, which I didn't run this year, but and she got a, a 403 time, which is really good, so it was her first full marathon. I was a spectator in that one, which if you've ever tried to watch a marathon can be a little intense trying to, to meet up throughout the course. I think I saw her four times and I walked half as far as she ran. So it was, it was pretty fun, fun event. Um, then a question for Captain Nick. If Acme Red switched its whole fleet over to Mad Dogs, would you retire now or would you keep flying them? Just a, a random question, I guess. I would imagine I know the answer. I mean, most everybody 
that I've talked to that loves flying like everybody does, if the salary was the same, we'd probably fly short hops in a 172. But anyway, I appreciate the show. You guys keep it up. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Brandon. Nick, what's your answer? I think you'd like it, actually. I would love to have a go flying the Mad Dog, quite honestly. I think it would be uh, a cha- <laughs> Yeah, I think it would be a challenge uh, that I would enjoy tackling, and I wouldn't guarantee I'd be any good at it, but I'd, I'd love to give it a go. And uh, and I've, I've said this before, I you know, I quite like flying the Airbus because I know how to fly it and I can fly it well. Um, I'd fly any aeroplane if that's what the job required me to do, and I really don't care, quite honestly, between you, me, and the gatepost. Um, so, and if they said, right, there are no Airbuses, you've all got to fly, you're going to have to fly Boeing 737s, uh, probably one of my least favorite airplanes, I would say, okay, fair enough, I'll have to fly that. But if they said Mad Dog, I'd actually be really quite excited to have the opportunity to uh, see how I got on with it. Good point. Good point. I, I, I figured that would have been your answer because, you know, regardless of what kind of airplane we fly, we're, we're pilots. And, uh, and, you know, Fred's a good example of that. Um, Fred can't stick with one type at all. How many now? 15? Oh, I think I'm at Fred? 17 or something. 17. Yeah. Oh, my wow. God, Fred. <laughs> um, but, you know, we, we do this. We don't do this for the love of the airplane that we're flying. We do this because we love flying. Yeah, what, whatever flying machine it is, we put ourselves in. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I think we kind of enjoy, you know, uh, experiencing different different types. And they're all different and they're all wonderful. Which is your favorite, Fred? No, I'd love to try the Mad Dog. They won't let me, but I'd, I'd love to. Uh... <laughs> I think that you would find that the Mad Dog is very similar to the types of airplanes that you're used to flying, Fred, because it's all... You know, it's that it's that uh, you know cable that's going all the way out to that control tab, actually flying the airplane, and uh, it's much more similar to a, a one seventy two than uh, any other airliner out there flying. Um, but it is an air transport category airplane. It's a great. It's got a great pedigree. It's a great airplane. I, mean, I, I never thought I'd ever say that, but I guess again, I've been flying it for so long. Perhaps I've forgotten what it's like to fly a Boeing and a Lockheed. Never flown an Airbus myself, but. Uh, you know, I, I, that's just what I'm used to. And I like uh, actually feeling how the airplane's flying. And, uh, you know, for, for a lot of us, flying airplanes is more than just a job. It's more than a profession. It's kind of, um, it's, a, it's our craft. And uh, we take a lot of pleasure in doing it as best we can. And uh, just the uh, being uh, one with the machine is, uh, is what we're, uh, a lot of us are, are uh, going for. Absolutely. Um. Let's see. You know what? It's a great time now, I believe, to uh, do this week's installment of Plain Tales. What do you guys think? Woohoo! Let's do it. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales, Billy Barker. At this time of the year, whilst wearing my red poppy in remembrance, my mind often turns to those who fought in the Great War. 
Many nations contributed to the victory that ended with the signing of the armistice between the Allies and the Germans that ended the war and took effect at 11 o'clock on the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918. Were I to single out a particular pilot from amongst those nations who fought in the air alongside the British during that long and bloody war, it might be a young Canadian, William George Barker. Born just before the turn of the century, Billy Barker grew up on the frontier of the Great Plains, riding horses, shooting and working on his father's farm and sawmill. A good student, as often or not, his work kept him from attending classes, but he excelled in many things. In particular, he was an excellent shot with his Winchester repeating rifle and a fine horseman. He was 20 when war was declared and the call went out to the Dominion of Canada that the young men of the empire were needed to fight for the mother country. Barker answered, and enlisted as a trooper with the 1st Canadian Mounted Rifles. He served as a Colt machine gunner for a year in the trenches of the Western Front, and in particular in the Ypres Salient of Belgium. He endured the filth and rats, the bullets cracking overhead and the unceasing artillery bombardments that filled his days. He was horrified at the carnage, and before long he yearned to join what seemed to be a cleaner war, being fought in the skies overhead, and he applied to join the Royal Flying Corps. The RFC were suffering a shortage of observers, particularly since the Germans had developed a method for their Fokker Eindecker E3s to fire through the propeller arc. Losses amongst the slow British BE-2s were high. Billy's accuracy with a machine gun was in demand, and after only six days of training, he found himself with nine squadron. Billy did well and survived, unlike almost all of the original crews in the squadron who had died or been shot down. He even claimed his first kill when he shot down a Roland scout who dove out of the sun behind them. Barker swung round and loosed a volley that hit the German in the forehead, killing him. Two weeks later, he downed a second Roland scout in flames and was mentioned in dispatches. Barker was officially attached to the RFC, promoted to second lieutenant and posted to number four squadron, which was in great demand as the Battle of the Somme raged below and the generals needed constant aerial photo reconnaissance. He was wounded in the thigh, but such was the importance of their duties, he was simply bandaged and sent back to flying. On a mission to photograph new German defence works in their BE-2, Barker and his pilot were attacked by a pair of Albatross D-2 scouts, but they did such damage to one that they fled the scene. Getting back to the task in hand, they had almost finished when they were intercepted by four more. Again, Barker's skill with his gun scared them off, and they returned to their base with the vital photographs. For this and the high quality of his previous work, Barker received his first decoration, the Military Cross. On November 13, 1916, the British finally battered their way into and held the important village of Beaumont Hamel. 
Barker and the rest of the RFC were instructed to maintain a close watch on German activities in the area. Barker and his pilot were flying very low when they spotted a large concentration of German troops. He proceeded to send an emergency zone call. This had priority, and the artillery within the entire sector was brought to bear on this important target. In the area, the German troops were sheltering. Explosions erupted, throwing mud, men and machinery into the air. When the smoke cleared, the destruction was terrible. A formidable force of 4,000 had been broken. Barker was an ambitious man, and not content to remain an observer, he applied for pilot training. He moved to a flight school in England and soloed after an incredibly short 55 minutes of training. The training was rudimentary and there was no instruction on aerial tactics, dogfighting, evasive manoeuvres or even how to recover from a spin. It was hardly surprising that the average life expectancy of a pilot on the Western Front was only 11 days. Billy Barker returned to the front line on number 15 squadron, this time in the front cockpit of an RE-8. Hardly an improvement on the cumbersome BE-2s, it wasn't a match for the German Albatross D-2s or the Halberstadt scouts. Nevertheless, he soon shot down one. He quickly gained a reputation for being one of the best recce pilots on the front and was again mentioned in dispatches for accuracy directing artillery fire onto a trench filled with German troops preparing for an attack. Moments after, he was targeting two long-range artillery guns and during this flight, his aircraft was so peppered with bullet and shrapnel holes that it collapsed on landing never to fly again. This action gained him a bar to his military cross. In August that year, he was injured by a shard of shrapnel that struck his head. He passed out from blood loss but his observer brought him round again in time to land his badly damaged aircraft by pouring liquor down his throat from a flask. With his wound patched up, he returned to duty. A short rest spell in the UK followed, with Barker instructing new pilots, but not happy to be away from the action, he pestered his superiors for a posting to a scout squadron flying one of the new Sopwith camels. Frustrated with the delay, he beat up the headquarters building until his paperwork was hastened through, probably to get him out of their hair, and he headed off to 28th Squadron as a flight commander flying the camels on the Western Front. His first combat mission was in October 1917, escorting a group of bombers when the expected swarm of new and capable enemy Albatross D3 fighters came up at them. In the 15-minute dogfight that followed, Barker literally shot the wings off a green Albatross. Two days later, Barker became an ace by shooting down two more. He was leading a flight of six camels and they were strafing a line of soldiers in a rainstorm when they were surprised by a flight of albatrosses. Two camels from his flight immediately spun into the mud and Barker was fighting for his life. Bullets shot through his fuselage from the tail up to the cockpit. 
Turning as tightly as he could, he barely cleared a copse of trees and then unexpectedly pulled up into a loop. He levelled off only a few feet from the ground behind the albatross and fired a burst into it, sending the plane crashing into the ground. Another albatross got behind him and Barker repeated the manoeuvre to shoot down his sixth aircraft. Two days following this encounter, he downed his seventh German fighter. He might well have become the leading ace on the Western Front, but the Italians fighting in the Austro-Hungarian offensive were suffering, and the RFC sent four squadrons to the Italian front to give aid. Italy was a far cry from the muddy trenches of France. Their airfield was backed by the snow-capped Alps, and the only real discomfort was having to live in tents. The Austrians had been fighting the demoralised Italian Regia Aeronautica and didn't expect to be confronted with experienced pilots from the Western Front. Barker opened the aerial killing for the British when his flight of four camels were jumped by twelve albatrosses. After twenty minutes of dogfighting, he ended the skirmish by downing one of their opponents. In his combat logbook, Barker wrote... I dived onto one and fired about 50 rounds, and he went down in a vertical dive. I followed, and as he flattened out at 5,000 feet, I got a burst off of 80 rounds at close range. His top wing folded back to the fuselage, and later the lower wing came off. Barker quickly became renowned as one of the war's top balloon busters. These observation balloons, or to be more correct, aerostats, were used by both sides to elevate artillery spotters so that they could watch the fall of the shell fire. Highly flammable hydrogen gas was used to inflate the balloons, so they were very vulnerable to tracer bullets covered with flammable phosphorus. However, they were also very well protected by anti-aircraft guns and long-range machine guns, so balloon busting was a risky business. Despite this, Barker and his companion Hudson often went about as a pair and coordinated their attacks so that one kept the gunner's heads down whilst the other attacked the balloons. They risked admonishment by frequently going out together on extra flights to practice their attacks, and once they had their teamwork perfected, their attacks became relentless. The wing commander wrote, Captain Barker observed that thick ground mist made conditions ideal for attacking balloons. He and Lieutenant Hudson flew to where two large observation balloons and three small ones were closely parked a few feet in the air. Captain Barker and Lieutenant Hudson attacked the large balloons which caught fire, and all five were destroyed. There was no interference from the ground except desultory and very badly aimed firing from two heavy tracer batteries near the balloons. Christmas Day had Barker with two others paying the Austrian pilots a visit. On cardboard they wrote, To the Austrian Flying Corps from the English RFC, wishing you a Merry Christmas. They then proceeded to fly across the field wingtip to wingtip, firing their incendiary Buckingham bullets into the open doors of the hangars. Soon the planes and hangars were burning fiercely. 
They swooped around and shot up the air raid trenches, where the mechanics and some of the pilots were trying to hide. They killed twelve and wounded many others. The trio made it back and quietly persuaded the mechanics to patch the bullet holes, as unauthorised flying was banned. In reply, after a day of drinking and brooding, on the morning of Boxing Day, the Austrians headed out for revenge. Most were still drunk when at 8am they were roused to avenge the insult. They couldn't even maintain position in the air and soon became scattered. Barker was awakened by the air raid alarm and the whole squadron jumped to their camels. The Austrians were in disarray and mistakenly bombing a nearby airfield when 29 squadron and some Italian planes intercepted them. A large melee ensued which resulted in the loss of 12 Austrian aircraft, won by Barker. Six enemy machines came down all around the RFC aerodrome. One Austrian plane landed on the British field and they ran out to capture the wounded pilot but found him out cold from drink. Another captured Austrian was still wearing his formal mess dress uniform under his leather flying coat. Barker's exploits became legend and he was tasked with all sorts of special missions such as dropping enemy spies behind enemy lines. His count of kills grew, as did his row of medals. The citation for his second bar to his military cross read, Captain William George Barker, DSOMC, for conspicuous gallantry and devotion to duty. When leading patrols, he on one occasion attacked eight hostile machines, himself shooting down two, and on another occasion, seven, one of which he shot down. In two months, he himself destroyed four enemy machines and drove down one and burned two balloons. Moving forward to September 1918, has Barker flying the Sopwith Snipe? He was supposed to be commanding a training school in England, but had wrangled a chance to visit the Western Front. At 22,000 feet, he spotted a German recce aircraft below him and dove to attack. He first killed the rear gunner before sending the shattered aircraft to earth, but Barker had failed to spot a Fokker D-7 fighter climb up behind him. The first he knew was when an explosive bullet shattered his right femur. Despite his injury, Billy fought the German and circled behind, shooting his fuel tank and sending him down in flames. His fight, however, had dropped him right into a Yasta, a German fighter squadron, of an entire circus made up of nearly 60 Fokkers. His tiny snipe was being chewed to shreds and he was hit in the left thigh, but fighting back valiantly, he drove two Fokkers down in spins. Fainting from pain and blood loss, his aircraft fell out of control for several thousand feet. When he came around, he was amongst a second Yasta, and in desperation he charged at a nearby Fokker, firing all the way. Just before they collided, the enemy aircraft blew apart, but Barker's left elbow had been hit and completely shattered. 
fainting a second time, he came around in a spin, and on recovery, he found himself on the tail of another Fokker, which he shot down in flames. Trying to disengage, he was harried by a German flight who shot off his fuel tank. With his engine faltering, he switched to the small reserve tank and evaded until he crossed the Allied lines before crash landing. Members of a Highland regiment pulled him from the wreckage and were amazed to find him alive. Thousands of British soldiers, including Canada's General Andrew McNaughton, had watched the whole fight and were cheering lustily as Barker unbelievably beat his way through an entire German circus. He remained unconscious for several days in hospital in Rouen. In the aftermath, he received congratulatory telegrams from the King, the Prince of Wales and Lord Hamilton. On November the 20th, 1918, he was awarded the Victoria Cross and was again inundated with congratulations from Prime Minister Borden, the Canadian General Staff and the one that meant the most to him, from Lieutenant Colonel Billy Bishop. His years after the war were filled with constant pain, debilitation and depression. He missed the hard and fast life of combat. Then, quite unexpectedly, whilst test flying a new aircraft for the new Royal Canadian Air Force, at only 200 feet, his aircraft turned inverted and crashed nose first into a field. There was no indication of a fault in the aircraft, and nobody really knows what happened. It doesn't really matter. He died an ace, a hero, and the most decorated serviceman in the history of Canada. Wow. What a story, and what a man. Yeah, it is a great story, isn't it? Yeah, great story, uh, isn't it, Jeff? Uh, uh, and thanks, of course, to Liz, who uh, first sent me a, a little picture of a memorial. Uh, I guess it's his grave, which is uh, not that far from her for, uh, in Toronto. And um, she's promised to go and take me uh, a picture that I can use uh, to put on that uh, plain tail uh, once we get the uh, plain tail page up. But uh, it, the, him surviving that last flight was quite incredible. I mean, I, I find he had three bullets in one leg. He had his entire femur shattered, you know, the main leg bone on his and his right leg shattered. Um, he had his elbow completely blown apart, so he couldn't use his left hand. He only had his right hand left, uh, right arm left to, to fly the aircraft. And how the hell he survived cra that crash landing, I do not know. But uh, yeah, an incredible man. Yeah, the only thing I can add is that a uh, production note. Um, let's watch our language next time, Nick. Um, oh, all those fuckers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Family show, right? Hang on. Yeah, I know. Uh, I, I family do. show, ladies and gentlemen. Family show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and all those fuckers were Dornias or whatever the joke is. <laughs> yes. Oh, so, uh, man. Yeah, my apologies. I'm doing my best, but <laughs> I know. 
Oh, uh, speaking of doing our best, uh, if you're watching the video, I uh, we're stuck in the plain tail screen. I can't have done everything to try to jar this thing loose. But um, yeah, it's better than looking at my mug. That's for sure. Get to look at the uh, the big old uh, microphone there. Absolutely. So to speak. Yeah. <laughs> and as uh, Liz Piper says in the chat room, we Canucks are tough. I quite agree. Yeah, you are. You are. Wow. And Willem says he's proud of, uh, he, he, from Germany, of course, he's proud of their fuckers. Huh. Yeah. I think they would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. As, as Dana would say, wow. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, <laughs> All right. Yeah. What a great story. Thank you, uh, Liz, for coming up with that topic. And uh, as Captain Nick just mentioned, uh, still working on that. We're getting closer, uh, or I'm getting closer to uh, having that Plain Tales uh, page and feed uh, up and running. But uh, just a, I, I'm, I always have to look for space uh, in our uh, media server to uh, upload those audio files for y'all. So uh, that will be oh, soon, oh, I'm I, sure. I've, I've just dropped a faux pas. Sorry, uh, Willem. Uh, he's from uh, Holland. He's from the Netherlands, not from Germany. Oops. Oh. Oh. Wow. Major mistake well, there. He did say, he did say, our oh, fuckers. So I didn't yeah. know. Are they Dutch? The fucker. I think. Aren't they? I don't I know. Thought they, I thought they were German, but anyway, hence my confusion. Hey, um, Fred. Looking at the video here. Looking at your. Uh, your your mug um i noticed that there's a facial hair going on there is that a november thing um it's a uh, i've been traveling for the past seven day thing and um i didn't pack shaving cream so yeah oh there you go well it looks good on you you should keep yeah that's a good look all right um, i thought you were a tough guy okay. fred don't you just shave with a hunting knife in the mirror of your car that was one time <laughs> uh a man's man exactly all right um well thanks again uh nick for uh for the excellent plain tale and um oh hang on a minute i'm i'm getting corrections all the time here from the chat room now they're telling me that uh fokker uh are dutch so I want to know what the Dutch were doing building airplanes for the, the Luftwaffe in the First World War. What was going on there? Hmm. That's a good question. And Neville, of course, he said, yes, the Fokkers are Dutch, but the Effers are German. <laughs> <laughs> That's Neville. I didn't say that. Neville did. No, yeah. no. So all, all the, uh, the bad uh, email goes to Neville bounds at gmail.com. No, I don't, I don't think that's his actual address, but I think he can probably figure it out. All right. Um, let's see. Well, that was all I had in the feedback folder. Uh, we're at the what? Two and a half hour point. And, um, I think that this might be good time to shut down the show for, for now. Again, um, we're planning on recording live, uh, in two days, uh, Thursday afternoon, for those of you who are are uh, just uh, joining us at this moment, and uh, that'll be episode 299, and that will be published sometime early in the week um, of uh, Thanksgiving week, and then, of course, we're looking forward to the big uh, 300 episode 
celebration on Saturday, the Excellent. 25th of November. And when you do that next show, Jeff, I won't be around, so uh, I'm going to miss you, of course. But uh, I'd be very grateful if, uh, when you come to play The Plain Tale, um, if you could uh, tell everyone that it was Pilot Pip's suggestion. That, okay. Uh, oh, hello, I've just <laughs> just had an intruder in my room. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Oh. Company. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Uh, no, thank you, housekeeping. I did put "do not disturb" in my room as well. Um, and, I think and this is when, and, and this is, and this is when they realize that uh, uh, Captain Nick is doing the show in his underpants. <laughs> well, that's why there's no video today. Um, <laughs> okay, I'm just saving everyone. <laughs> So, so next so anyway, uh, next uh, episode in a couple of days, yeah. we're going to be doing a plain tale, and uh, the idea was uh, from Pip, Pilot Pip, Pilot Pip, correct? I mean, he he he's not the only person that's asked me to do a plain tale on this particular aircraft, but he's the most recent. That's all. Okay, very good. We'll um, mention that for sure. So, if you want to learn more about the show, please head over to airlinepilotguy.com, where you'll find information about the crew and the. Uh, and the community and the coffee fund merchandise and all that stuff and more. And again, that's airlinepilotguy.com. Uh, we have a couple of apps uh, for your iOS and Android devices uh, that are free and they are ad free as well. So please check that out by going over to the website or just looking for these show notes somewhere. And we'll have links uh, to the app stores and such for you there. Uh, social media, we have uh, a presence on Twitter. I, I, well, Captain Nick, why don't you go ahead and tell us about the social media? If you uh, if you can. Uh, okay. I'm sorry. You just Skyped out there. Um, Facebook is uh, facebook.com uh, forward slash airline pilot guy. And uh, we're on uh, Twitter. Uh, and you can get hold of us at, at APG crew. And, uh, and I think we're also on Slack. But. And someone else knows about that. Yeah, uh, hang on. Hillel, let me move out of the way. He's going to tell you about that. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1 and see you in Slack. Thank you very much for that. And let's see, Fred, how can we learn more about you and follow you on Twitter and uh, any other presence you might have on the, uh, on the interwebs? I don't want to ruin my international mystery man reputation, but um, okay. it's at little miss sunshine on uh, Twitter. And I don't even know how that's spelled. <laughs> Um, Little Miss Sunch. Yeah, S-U-N-S-H. Uh, Little Miss Sunshine, I think, full was taken. But yeah, I tweet about aviation. I tweet about technology and security. Excellent. And uh, also, perhaps on the uh, YouTube, I mean, the, um, the the Twitter, there's some kind of a link uh, toward your YouTube channel? There is. There's a couple. There's a drone channel and an aviation channel, but it's been, uh, it hasn't been updated in a very, very long time. So hopefully, uh, I'll get back to doing that in the future. Well, that's timeless, that stuff that you have on there. Uh, so check yeah, that there's, out. There's some fun stuff on there. Absolutely. 
So thanks, Fred, for uh, taking time out from your uh, busy work day over there in Barcelona. My pleasure. And uh, it was a, it's always great to see you. And I look forward to seeing you in person in, what, just under two weeks. So, uh, yeah, that's cool. And I should see Fred uh, in San Francisco. Fred, are you coming up to join us at the meetup at, uh, in Napa? Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell us about that. When's the, when's the meetup? Uh, yeah, there is going to be a meetup uh, in Napa, and uh, uh, Landon is organizing it. So uh, look for it on uh, on Twitter and uh, Facebook. Uh, I think mainly on Facebook. Okay. But uh, anyone who wants to come, you're welcome to. Excellent. I look forward to uh, hearing about all that. We're going to get a tour. We're meeting Jan, and we're going to get a tour of the uh, California Highway Patrol uh airborne division that they have up there so uh, that's going to be great fun there's a bunch of us that are going to make sure that we have no outstanding tickets and then we're going to go to that meetup but yes (laughs) or wear disguises well (laughs) well hopefully after you've been to the meetup you won't have any outstanding tickets anyway (laughs) yeah he'll maybe we'll just fly in to avoid any uh, any issues (laughs) Jan Jan will take care of all that don't worry about it (laughs) yeah all right well uh, that's that's cool so, uh, again, thanks, everybody, for uh, downloading the show um, on your favorite podcatcher. Uh, if, you're, if you use iTunes, uh, please subscribe, even if you don't necessarily get your podcast delivered via iTunes. But uh, if you have any time, uh, write a review, and uh, that helps uh, with uh, exposing other folks to the show as well. And uh, let's see. That's about all I can think of right offhand. So until next time, wishing you clear skies unlimited visibility and tailwinds take care god bless bye everybody bye all good day a good good pilot till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy I fly Omega Airline pilot guy He can land in heavy expressed on the Airline Pilot Guy podcast may not represent the views, opinions, or policies of any airline, real or fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, 
guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't Boeing, I ain't going.